Is my voice all right? And you can see the PowerPoint. It's good. Great. We looked at the Gospels last time, and uh, the other historical book in the New Testament is the Book of Acts. And over the years, people have contested the uh, Book of Acts as not being historically accurate. That's changed in my lifetime, actually. And so this morning, I want to look at some evidence that the Book of Acts is historically accurate. Um, we can look at, um, at Luke's prelude. Um, Luke um, claims to be an historian. The book of Luke starts this way, um, inasmuch as many have undertaken to uh, compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all these things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus means lover of God. I'm not sure if he's a believer, if he's just some Roman who loves all the gods, I'm not sure. When we get to heaven, I've got a number of questions I wanna ask. I wanna look around and see if he's there or not. But Luke apparently wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts uh, for this person to explain the history of the of Christianity and the uh, life of Jesus and the early church to this gentleman. The book of Acts starts this way. In the first book, which is the book of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So. Luke claims to know what he's talking about. I, I'm going to, come to spend some time comparing the writers of, um, uh, of different people um, with what's in the book of Acts. So let, let's look at two 19th century scholars and explorers, archaeologists. I'm going to start off with Sir William Ramsey, who died in 1939, uh, so he could miss World War II, I guess. Um, he studied in the Tübingen School, which is a school in Germany, which was a center of liberalism, which rejected um, a lot of things, uh, in particularly the historical reliable reliability of the New Testament. And he was a skeptic, did not believe that Acts was reliable. And he was a professor at Oxford and Aberdeen in Scotland, he was Scottish. Um, he received the Victorian Medal of the Royal Geographical Society, which will give you some indication of the, of the appreciation of his scholarship. And he traveled extensively throughout Asia Minor, which is today Turkey, to identify the cities mentioned in the Book of Acts. And I want to emphasize that when he started this work, um, he was a skeptic. Um, he probably set out to prove that the Book of Acts was not historically reliable. And his studies over a number of years led him to reject his early views and to affirm the historical accuracy of the book of Acts. Um, he, he, he wrote this in a book called The Bearing of Recent Discovery. On page 85, he wrote this. A further study showed that the book could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world, and that is written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. On page 89 of the same book, Ramsey said, 
you repress the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians. And on the authorship of the Pauline epistles, he concluded that all 13 New Testament letters ostensibly written by Paul were, were authentic. So here's a man, one of the great scholars of the modern world, um, who was a skeptic, who studied in a school which did not uh, accept the uh, historical accuracy of the Book of Acts, who changed his mind after he spent years doing archeology span and studies. Now, James Smith uh, is particularly interesting to me. Uh, my dad was a sailor. My dad spent 33 years in the Canadian Navy, and he sailed fairly extensively in the Mediterranean Sea, both during World War II and afterwards. And my dad, who was brought up in a very strict, uh, uh, well, in the gospel halls, for those who know them, um, was not always a close follower of our Lord, but I think he was a believer. And he told me on more, more, or more than one occasion that I visited this city that's in the book of Acts, which I studied when I was in Sunday school. And um, he would talk about having traveled the route which the apostle Paul traveled in the book of Acts. Well, James Smith was a sailor. And one of the things he did was that he bought a boat which he thought resembled very closely the boat which Paul traveled uh, his last journey to Rome um, onto the book of, uh, uh, of Acts chapter 27 when Paul was traveling to Rome. And he let the boat drift because Paul's boat was, um, was shipwrecked basically and drifted with the tides and the winds for many, many miles. And he followed that, tried to see where the tides and the winds would carry him as a sailor, an experienced sailor. And uh, he came to the conclusion that uh, uh, that no sailor could have written in a style so little like that of a sailor. No man, not a sailor, could have written a narrative of a sea voyage so consistent in all its parts, unless from a natural observation. This peculiarity of style is to me in itself a demonstration that the narrative of the voyage is an account of real events written by an eyewitness. The geographical details must have been taken from actual observation for the geographical knowledge of the age was not such as to enable a writer to be so minutely accurate in any other way. That's in his book, uh, The Shipwreck of St. Paul with dissertations on the life and writings of St. Luke and the ships and navigation of the ancients, third edition uh, in 1866. So here are two authors who um, spent time looking at that area within the last 150 years. Here are three secular authors from Luke's time. Um, perhaps the most important is Flavius Joseph, who was born sometime around 37 AD and he died about 100 AD. So he was alive during the time of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And um, um, he was born in Jerusalem, he's Jewish. And he fought against the Roman forces during the revolt of the Jewish, Jewish forces against Roman forces, which ended up with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He was kind of the general of the Jewish forces. And um, he was captured by General Vespasian and he was enslaved as an interpreter. He was lucky they didn't crucify him. And when Vespasian became the emperor in 69 AD, he granted freedom to Josephus, Josephus, who became his friend and a mentor to Titus, who was Vespasian's son. And Titus later became um, the emperor of the Roman Empire. And um, 
the tradition says that the Roman Empire couldn't figure out these Jews who were always revolting, and they're the people that were causing the, mo the most problems in the Roman uh, Empire. And they asked Joseph to write the history of the Jewish people so he could understand what was going on. And he wrote um, a few books. I had them in my library, both in English and French, and uh, the antiquities of the Jews and the Jewish wars. And they provide an independent, extra-biblical account of first century Jewish history. Um, another is Tacitus, lived somewhere between 56 AD and 120 AD. And um, he was a politician and perhaps the greatest Roman historian of his time. Um, he had, um, uh, he served in command of legions. He was a civilian leader. And um, his books, Annals and Histories, cover the reigns of the reigns of Tiberius, Clodius, and Nero. And so, what he says uh, uh, when we read those books, we can check that with the Book of Acts to make to see if they uh, they agree with each other. And the last is Suetonius, um, 69 AD to 122 AD. He's a Roman historian, and he wrote 12 biographies of the Roman rulers from the time of Julius Caesar to Domitian. And so. Um, uh, he um, is another person, his writings allow us to check the book of Acts as well. Let's look at the titles of the rulers in cities and provinces in the book of Acts. Now in the um, Roman Empire, there are different types of cities um, and provinces. There are provinces that depended on the Senate and they're called senatorial provinces and the provinces that decided that depended on the emperor um, and um, that's my, feel strange to us, but um, the setup of the um, leadership was different in those types of cities and provinces. In Acts chapter 13, verse seven, we read that um, when they're on the book of, when, when on the island of, of Cyprus, Paul, um, we read, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul. And um, each time I'm gonna put the Greek word in there because our English Bibles and the French Bibles are even worse. They don't always translate the same Greek title with the same English word. So I put the Greek word there to help us. Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. So here the ruler of this senatorial province, Cyprus is called a proconsul. And um, we read that when Galileo, Galileo was proconsul of Achaia. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal in Acts 18. So here we have another senatorial province, and we're told that the leader there, his name is, he's called a proconsul. And uh, in the book of Ephesus, we in the I'm story in the city of Ephesus, we read that when Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls let them bring charges against one another. And so here's another senatorial province where the, uh, the leader is called a proconsul, or the leaders. Uh, <clears throat> um, when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought before the tribunal. And we have recently discovered an inscription at Delphi, which confirms that Galileo was um, appointed as proconsul of Achaia at that time. So here, um, as, as Luke traces the travels of, of Paul, he gets the title 
of the leaders of these senatorial provinces right. Now there were imperial provinces and they depended directly on the emperor. And there they were called tribunes, hegemon in Greek. And in Acts 22, we read that the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks saying that he should be examined by flogging. Um, and in Acts 26, we say that the, the king arose and the governor, Hagamon, and Bernice, and those who are sitting with them. And once again, in this imperial province, the book of Acts 26, we get the title right. He's called a, a governor, a Hagamon. Uh, in other provinces, for instance, in Acts 13.1, we read that um, uh, in the church, there were prophets and teachers, and they named them Barnabas and Simeon who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene. And this gentleman who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And we read in Acts 12 that about that time, Herod the king, Agrippa I, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. It's interesting that, that Luke here gets right that um, um, Herod um, the Tetrarch, who died about 39, AD 39, um, was a friend of um, these people. And his title was Herod the Tetrarch. The Tetrarch comes from a Greek word which means the fourth. Um, the territory of Palestine, that whole area was divided into four parts. And when Herod the Great died, the empire was divided into four. And uh, the person who ruled one, one fourth of that territory was called a tetrarch. So this, this Herod was called the tetrarch, but some few years later from, head, from 41 to 44, Herod Agrippa I ruled between 41 and 44, and um, Luke got that right, um, which shows us that he probably didn't write it 200 years later. Roman colonies. Um, in Acts 16, we have Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now, Roman colony was a very special city. Um, it was considered to be part of Rome and its citizens were all Roman citizens. Often these colonies were formed by retired soldiers who were given land and Roman citizenship to thank them for their service. And they're very special places to live in. In Acts 16, 20, we read, and when they brought them to the magistrates, Stargua, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our cities. And so we have this Greek word, this accurate word, which describes those who are responsible for order in the city. And once again, Luke gets that right. Um, and we also read that when it was day, the magistrates sent the police in Greek, Arab Duxwa. Um, and once again, that is the correct Greek word which describes in Roman colonies, the secondary authorities who were more directly involved in um, enforcing justice. So Luke gets it right again. Um, in Thessalonica, we read, um, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities. And that's Polax um, Zai. Uh, showing these men who have turned the world upside down and have come here also, Acts 17.6. This is particularly interesting because for many centuries, people laughed at this term. It's not found anywhere else. In all of uh, everything that we know about any Roman city, um, in no other cities are the, are the authorities called uh, 
this politox, we could say in English. Um, very contested, unique. But sometime around 1940, and this is, you know, I was born in 1947, so it's about when I was born, they found um, inscriptions and in archaeological digs at Thessalonica, uh, six different ones, fragments with an inscription of the first uh, six polytarchs in that city. And one of those fragments is in the British Museum. And so within the lifetime of some of us who are listening here or just before our lifetimes and the lifetimes of our fathers, um, we've had evidence that Luke was right here. Everybody thought he was wrong. The city of Ephesus with a town clerk, Grammatius, had quieted the crowd. And once again, we now know that that was the right term for that city. The island of Malta, we read that now in the neighborhood of that place where lands belong to the chief man, Toprototas Nasu, of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us. And Sergius uh, Paulus is known from secular historians. And it's interesting that if he had served 70 years late earlier, his title would have been different. It would have been Propreta. So once again here, we're seeing a pattern. Paul gets these all right every time. Paul and Luke, I mean. Um, William Ramsey said it this way. Uh, he visited all these places. He was involved in a lot of archaeological digs. And he said the officials with whom Paul and his companions brought into contact are those who would be there. Every person is found just where he ought to be. Proconsuls in senatorial provinces, Asiarchs in Ephesus, Stratqua in Philippi, Polytarchs in Thessalonica, magicians and soothsayers everywhere. Uh, he got it right. So here we're having building verse by verse, city by city, authority by authority. We're seeing that Luke got it right. And these titles, um, these positions changed over time as cities took on different uh, political uh, uh, situations. And um, Luke gets the right title in the right city at the right time, every time. Let's look at accurate descriptions of cities and provinces in the book of Acts. Um, what has impressed a good number of scholars is the manner in which Luke accurately portrays the political regions, the geography, the roadways, various means of travel of the first mid-century, mid-first century. Frequent, very understandable errors on such matters found in other contemporary historians, such as Tacitus, Pliny the Elder, Strabo, and even Josephus, are almost wholly absent from Luke. I would say wholly absent from Luke. Luke correctly identifies Lystra and Derby as Lyconian cities in Acts 14, though this was commonly mistaken by later, writing, later writers. Um, he does not include Caesarea within Judea, even if it's there geographically, owing presumably to its unique status as a city-state over and against other local regions. He got that right. Luke mentions 32 countries. Now I've traveled a great deal, but I don't think I've been in 32 different countries. 54 different cities, 95 different people, and 62 of these people are not mentioned by any other New Testament author. 27 of these people are unbelievers, mostly civil or military officials. And Luke gets them right. Uh, the following people mentioned in Acts are confirmed 
in secular sources. Annas, the uh, great high priest, Clodius, the Roman emperor, Gamaliel, the great Jewish rabbi, Cephas, who was another um, high priest, uh, James, the brother of our Lord, <coughs> Galileo, Galileo, um, Galileo, Agrippa I, Agrippa II, are mentioned in secular sources, Sergius Paulus, Felix, Drusilla, Festus, Bernice, are all confirmed as people who lived at that time in secular um, references. The expulsion of Jews from Rome under Clodius is confirmed by his bio biographer, um, Suetonius. Interesting that Clodius, who was a Roman emperor, <clears throat> was actually pro-Jewish for a number of years. <clears throat> as I understand it, his second wife was a Jew, Jewish lady. And she traveled to Jerusalem and um, um, she had become a Christian. And she traveled to Jerusalem and she noticed that the um, Christians in Jerusalem were being terribly persecuted uh, by the um, Jewish leaders. And she returned to Rome to her husband and complained to him about how the poor Christians were being persecuted by the Jews. And because of that, and perhaps for other reasons, Clodius banned Jews from Rome. And Luke talks about that in the book of Acts, and that's confirmed by uh, Clodius's biography, secular biography. Um, we read in Acts 18 that he found a Jew named Achilla, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy um, with his wife Priscilla because Clodius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So confirmed by a secular historian. References to Felix as procurator and his wife Priscilla are validated by Josephus and Tacitus, secular authors. Uh, after some days, Felix came with his wife Priscilla who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. Luke presents Festus as successor to Felix, and this is confirmed by Josephus and Suetonius. Uh, in Acts 24, we read when two, days had, two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Luke gets it right. The identity, the identity of King Agrippa and Berenice, elder sister of Drusilla and widow of Herod, is confirmed by Josephus. Uh, now, when many days had passed, we, we read that Agrippa the king and Berenice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Let's talk about the consistency with Paul's epistles. Um, Craig Bloomberg says it like this the very fact that one can mesh acts with the more fragmentary and sometimes incidental allusions to Paul's life in his letters sets Acts off uh, apart from historical novels, modern and ancient, that one can generate a plausible detailed chronology, chronology of events depicted in Acts, again, especially in comparison with Paul's letters and Charter's missionary journeys as coherent and sensible travels further suggest Acts is historical. I don't want to uh, be dishonest here, um, I think it would be important to, um, to look at two controversies that still remain today that shouldn't remain anymore. The first is controversy over Quirinius. Um, we read in Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 4, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Um, I got my census papers this week uh, from the federal government, maybe you got yours, um, they had census back in those days as well. 
Um, we read here that this was the first registration when in Luke chapter two, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, this is very controversial because critics would argue that Quirinius governed Syria from AD six to nine uh, that's 10 years after Herod's death. And it's evident that our Lord um, was born during Herod's reign. Probably Herod died within two years after our Lord's birth. Um, the census that Quirinius um, directed was administered in AD 6. Um, this doesn't fit together. Luke made a mistake here, say the critics. Um, Jesus was born while Herod was alive. Luke made an important mistake here. But recently, um, based on evidence from inscriptions discovered by Ramsey, we now know that Quirinius twice held important positions in Syria, both before and after Jesus' birth. Um, when it says that Quirinius was governor of Syria, the Greek word here um, is a very general word. It talks about somebody in authority. And when you look at the customs of um, of the uh, Jew, Jew, of the uh, Roman emperors, um, they like to to share the power in provinces where there are problems. Especially, you'll notice in the Gospels how Herod and Pilate were kind of in competition; didn't like each other very well. They they, they passed the puck back and forth about Jesus' trial, didn't they? Um, and Roman empires were good at that. And Quirinius, from what I've been able to read, was, was a troubleshooter for the Roman emperor in that whole Middle Eastern area. And he definitely held positions of power um, when, uh, in Syria uh, while Herod was still alive. Um, <clears throat> we must reject an argument that silence from history, dear, I've proofread this many times, it's not form history, it's from history, excuse me, about an event reported in the Bible is a proof of an error. That argument goes this way. If the Bible says something and we can't prove it from, prove it from history, it must be wrong. Um, one of the ongoing problems in the Old Testament is when we're told that Darius the Mede um, captured Babylon from the Babylonians. And we're not quite sure he, who he was. Um, and because of that, well, Daniel must have made a mistake. Well, Maybe it's possible that we don't know about it. We haven't discovered yet who he was, but he did exist. I've got a couple of illustrations for that, about that for you. For many, many years, the existence of Sodom and Gomorrah was considered to be a legend. Um, no evidence that those cities existed. And even in Bible times, even in the Old Testament, uh, when they're talking about a, a nation that had completely dis disappeared, they would say, this city will become like Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll lose all traces of it. We won't be able to find where it used to exist. And so for many, many years, um, uh, centuries, the existence of Sodom and Gomorrah was considered to be a legend, uh, an error, uh, not historically true. Um, and then we discovered Ebla. Ebla is a city, city-state, 
in the northern part of Syria now, what is now Syria. And it's a very interesting city. Um, as they did archeological digs, they, they discovered at, uh, really tens of thousands of cuneiform tablets. And um, as an accountant, um, I'm glad to tell you that these tablets um, were basically um, uh, accounting records. And they would, um, it was a trading city. It was a trading center for the whole area. It, it was destroyed perhaps 100, 200 years before the time of Abraham. And um, without going into too much detail, if I were younger, I would want to study the language. It was probably an early version of a Semitic language um, close to Hebrew. And uh, it's a challenge. Um, but they managed to translate a lot of these, um, of these tablets. And in, and in some of these tablets, you have this. Arrived today from the city of Sodom, 16 camels loaded with grapes and whatever, uh, probably not grapes, but uh, figs and so on and so forth. And, and so we have, so here we have um, archeological historical evidence that these cities whose existence was doubted by skeptics for all these years, we now have independent historical evidence that they existed, that they were uh, a city that sent uh, agricultural products all over the Middle East, and we can't contest that anymore. So the argument that silence from history proves that there's an error in the Bible is much weaker now because of what we have discovered in that city of Ebla. Nineveh, um, the book of, Jedda, uh, book of Jonas, Jonah talks about Nineveh and uh, Jonah describes a very great city. And of course, over many, many centuries that was contested. Skeptics said that city never existed. We don't know where it is. It couldn't have been that big, couldn't have had that many people in it. I had the privilege of holding in my hands, of looking through, the original documents which were prepared by the French archaeologist who did the first archaeological digs in the city of Nineveh in 1847 and in the following years. At Master's Seminary in Los Angeles, they have a part of that library which is, to me, I, I would spend the rest of my life there. I'd put a, put a blow up bed and uh, some, some raisin bran and some milk in there with me and I'd spend the rest of my life there happily. And um, there's some wonderful books there. One of the books in that library is John Knox's Bible. Back in the, um, John Knox is that great Scottish reformer. They tell us that Mary Queen of Scots said that she feared John Knox's prayers more than all the assembled, assembled armies of, of Europe. John Knox was martyred, and the custom in those days that when a, a reformer was martyred, they would cut his veins, and the blood would drip into a bucket, and they would throw his Bible in the bucket to desecrate the Bible because they hated the Bible, didn't want the Bible to be in the hands of ordinary people. And I held that Bible in my arms, in my hands, and that Bible, the pages um, are stained a dark reddish brownish. It's John Knox's blood. I've held that in my hand. Uh, it was quite a quite an experience. 
that in that library, they had the original books are huge. They're about two feet wide by about 18 inches high. Uh, where the, the draftsman with that expedition who looked at and looked into the um, city of Nineveh, uh, their original documents, they drew the city, beautiful artwork um, over a period of years. And so we discovered the city of Nineveh. And we now know that Jonah was not far off, not off at all when he described the city. So here are two uh, cities that we now know existed. We found them, uh, we found evidence of their existence. And for years, silence from history was shown as a Proof that this was an error, but we now know that silence and history might also prove that we just hadn't found it yet, right? <clears throat> now, the claim is made that the first census was about AD 6, years after Jesus' birth. Uh, recent discoveries in Egypt, which was part of the Roman Empire, and very close to Palestine, naturally, it shows that there was an early census there, about the time of Jesus' birth, that the Roman emperor wanted to do a census every 14 years. Um, and, uh, and so there was an early census in Egypt about the time of Herod's death before that. And so if there is a census in Egypt, there's no reason to believe that there wasn't a census elsewhere in the Roman Empire in Palestine. Uh, and we must, rem must remember that difficulties in communication, distances, slow travel, meant that a census in the Roman Empire could take years to carry out in different areas perhaps not carried out the same year in Palestine as in Egypt. And remember that in Palestine, there was a resistance to a, sense, to a census. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when the census in 6 AD took place, there was a, a civil war in, um, in Palestine and it's, and it's referred to in the book of Acts. Um, there was two reasons for that. The Romans did census because they wanted to collect taxes. And the census was a way of finding who should, who, should, who should pay their taxes. And you must also remember that in the Old Testament, there's a story about, of, of a census that took place in the time of King David. And that was a terrible error on David's part. And it was punished severely, severely by the Lord. There's a terrible plague that took place. Was that because he omitted collecting the special tax at the time of the census? Was it because it was a demonstration of his pride instead of trusting on the Lord? Perhaps it was all of that. But because of that history, um, the Jews resented a census a great deal, and perhaps it took time to, uh, for that to take place, uh, to put it into order. And so the argument about uh, whether uh, this census took place 6 BC, whether Santonius was emperor back, was the governor back then, we now know that that is plausible. That's plausible. <clears throat> Conclusions on this point, <clears throat> taken individually, these points might not be thought to be convincing evidence. Uh, just taken one by one, those names of the rulers of different cities, uh, one, one instant wouldn't convince me. But when considered together, we see a pattern of very reliable reporting. Uh, titles of Roman officials changed often and rapidly over short periods. Inscriptions, archaeological excavations, and secular authors demonstrate that Luke was very, very exact. Geographical and political divisions also changed quickly and often. Luke also reported the exact situation without errors. If he had been writing years after the events, he could not have had easy access to that information. So this brief survey we've done this morning, which is not exclusive, 
inclusive, provides strong evidence that Luke is a competent and accurate historian who lived at the time of the events recorded in Acts and was either an eyewitness or was closely associated with eyewitnesses to them. Um, I said at the beginning that um, William Ramsey started off as a skeptic about the book of Acts, and he was a uh, scholar who was formed by the school in Tübingen in Germany, which was very skeptical. Very interesting, uh, I'm subscribed to a couple of scholarly journals and uh, I have access to a lot of internet journals now. And um, it's fascinating to me that Tübingen, which was the seat of liberalism, uh, today, the majority of scholars in that school now agree that the Book of Acts is historical. And that recent, um, in the last 100, 150 years, and even in the last number of, number of years in my lifetime, or just before my lifetime, have convinced them that the Book of Acts is historical. Yes, the Book of Acts is historical. I have a second presentation I want to make. Has the Bible been changed? Um, I don't watch English TV that much, but I know that in French TV, Christmas time, Easter time, they have these great experts, historians, theologians come on. And they'll of course tell us that um, uh, the Bible has been changed and over the years, uh, people modified it. And uh, we can't really believe that the, Bible, that the Bible we have in our hands today is as it was written. Um, so we can't really trust it completely. And so I'm gonna, talk about the New Testament this morning, because that's all the time I have. Um, it, the, new, the Bible that we have in our hands, the Bible that we read each week, every morning, every evening, I hope, that we hear, hear read in our, and taught in our churches, is that the same Bible that was written by the apostles, uh, the New Testament? That's a question I'm going to ask. Uh, good luck about some Greek manuscripts. Don't know how well you can see what I have put on the screen here. Um, that's a Greek manuscript. You'll notice that uh, if you can see it, I wish I was. I wish we were together and I could put it up on the big screen. But you notice it's in capital letters, um, and you'll notice that there's no space between words, eh? Uh, and there's no commas and there's no periods. Um, I teach homiletics, and I spend always spend a fair amount of time when I when I have the time uh, to tell young men who are going to be preachers that if you can't read God's word properly in public, you shouldn't be preaching. Um, I hate it when people read God's word as quickly as they can um, and get through reading Bible as quickly as you can so you get to the important stuff that I'm going to tell you. Um, and uh, I tell them what commas are there for and what colons are there for and what semicolons are there for. But um, when you work on some of these original Greek manuscripts, I've done a little bit of that. These are not originals, these are probably fourth century manuscripts. Um, it's lots of fun because you gotta figure out where the words start and end, it's, 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 it's difficult. Um, there are about 5,700 known Greek New Testament manuscripts dating from the seventh century through to the 16th century. They stopped copying them by hand when printing presses were invented. Um, happily, they're being scanned and placed on the internet. Um, I have a lot of interest in this. Um, just to give you, tell you why, tell you my background in this. I've been working for over 50 years in Christian publishing in the French publishing world. Uh, I've been managing um, Publication Chrétienne, which is a, a 
uh, a French evangelical publishing house. And in, in later years, um, we've done over 60 commentaries. And these commentaries have varied between 400 and 800 pages, some of them, different level of commentaries. Some of them, they're very complicated. And one of my jobs was to be the go-to person when our translators were having trouble with a text where the French Bible was somewhat different from the English Bible, where the French Bible was based on a different Greek manuscript, a Greek uh, text uh, than the English um, Bible. And when you translate it, we had to make some adjustments. Sometimes you'd have an English author who would spend a paragraph explaining why this English word in the English Bible uh, could better be translated a different way. And in the French Bible, it's already translated that way. So we had to take that paragraph out. So I was kind of the, I'm, I'm not a translator, but I was a person, the go-to person at the publishing house to solve that type of problems. And every week I'd spend six or we, we probably have 10 or 15 translators working on projects. And I spend time on the phone with one of them or many of them during the week trying to solve the type of problem. Um, we, um, we're looking right now at taking on the 43 volumes of the NIC commentary, the new uh, NAC, New American Commentary, which is a good level of commentary, which we're thinking of translating a project of about 13 million words. Um, we'll be deciding the next couple of weeks if we're taking that on or not. Happily, we now have in Publication Chrétien um, some, a lady and two men who are real Greek and Hebrew scholars, which I'm not really, and who still have a mind because I don't have a mind anymore. And so that, that's being taken by somebody else. But just to say that I spent a lot of my life looking into this type of problem um, and trying to, to apply these in, in, in commentaries. Um, <clears throat> I'm happy to say that these manuscripts are being scanned and placed on the internet. Up to now, um, I've forgotten the little I known about this type of thing. As I say, I don't have the memory I used to have. But I would have to take my faith when somebody would say that this manuscript, P46, or, or, or some, we have, you know, we have um, keyword, key, key letters, P means papyri, or um, this, this document, the word is spelt this way. And I say, okay, they say that. I couldn't see it for myself. That document is in a monastery somewhere or in somebody's private collection. I can't see if that's true or not. But there are people, um, there are a couple of organizations that are going throughout the world, photographing these documents, which are often very fragile, and scanning them and cleaning up the scans and putting them on the internet so that we all consult them. So um, there are small fragments, documents of many pages. An example is P46, uh, Chester, uh, Chester Bidai Papyri 46, which contains all of Paul's epistles except the pastoral epistles. We have 86 pages of the original 104, found in the desert in Egypt, one of the oldest manuscripts we have of the Bible. Uh, there are codices, which are bound books from the fourth century with all or most of the New Testament. Um, 67 manuscripts are dated for the fourth century and 20,000 manuscripts with translations of the New Testament into other languages. Here is perhaps the oldest fragment of the um, Gospel of John, perhaps of the whole Bible, it's called P52. Um, there's a lot being written on the date of this fragment. Um, when it was first discovered, people were claiming that it dated from about 125. That would be interesting because we think that the Gospel of John was written sometime around 90 AD. So this fragment would exist 
if they were right some 30 years, was produced some 30 years after the time the Gospel of John was written. And the Gospel of John was written in Ephesus in Turkey, and this fragment was discovered in Egypt. So um, that a piece of the Gospel of John was found in Egypt 30 years after John written it, wrote it would be quite interesting. Um, that date is contested. There are some that will date it as late as 200 AD. Others will say 175, which is probably more accurate than, than the other proposed dates. But so we have a, a fragment of the Gospel of John that dates to that old. Uh, here is the Codex Sinaiticus. Um, those who know me well know that I have some type of mental problem. I can't pronounce some words properly. Please excuse me. <clears throat> You'll see once again that this manuscript has all, all on capitals and it's um, it's uh, no, no, no uh, space between the words and no, no punctuation hardly at all. Interesting manuscript, Tischendorf, um, traveled throughout the Eastern world looking for old Greek manuscripts. Uh, Tischendorf was a friend of John Darby, for those of you who are brethren in your background. And um, uh, he went to the St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai, Sinai, which is occupied, which is run by Russian Orthodox monks. And they were burning, uh, starting a fire with some old paper. And he looked at them and he found that it was a, an ancient version of the Greek, Greek uh, Bible. And he stopped them burning it and gathered up all the leaves he could find. And he went back and forth, went back and forth the monastery a few times. Finally got permission from the uh, Russian czar to purchase the manuscript and take it back to England. It's now in the British uh, Museum and um, other parts of the manuscript and other places throughout the world. But it's, um, it's a fairly complete copy of the Bible, um, which dates from the three, 300s probably. So that's one of the uh, oldest manuscripts. There are different families of Greek manuscripts. I want to get into that a little bit. Um, <clears throat> there's Alexandrian manuscripts which come from Egypt in the desert. And there's some of the early earliest manuscripts, <clears throat> um, 300 ADs, um, some before that perhaps. And it's the manuscripts, the Greek family of that, that Greek text of those manuscripts is preferred by the ESV version, the NASB version, the NIV, and most modern Greek scholars prefer those manuscripts because they are older ones. The Byzantine, uh, basically Turkey today, uh, manuscripts are generally later manuscripts, 5th through 12th century, mostly later. Uh, much, much harmonization in the Gospels, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, the Textus Receptus, the received text, which is the basis of the King James Version, um, are based on these manuscripts. I was raised in Nova Scotia <clears throat> when I was a young boy. If you didn't have a King James Bible, you weren't a believer. You weren't a Christian. Um, true Christians had a King James Bible. If you went to my local assembly with a Bible other than the King James Version, you didn't get in. You know, it was that serious. And then there are other families of manuscripts, uh, less important, the Western, Western Roman Empire, um, love paraphrase, paraphrase and harmonization. So I wanna talk about variants because one of the arguments that's made is that there are so many variations in these Greek manuscripts that we can't know if the Bible we have today is the right one or not. And so there are differences in spelling, in word order, etc. cetera. Um, and these variations are very minor and they affect no doctrine or teaching. 
And um, I just like to say that it's one of my, in French we say dada, it's one of my, one of the things I spend a lot of time on, not as much now as I used to, but it's one of my passions. And because of my work in overseeing the translation of commentaries into French, I had to get into this a great deal. Um, there are only two major passages that scholars believe were not part of the original inspired Bible. John 8, 3 to 11, the woman caught in adultery. I hate to say that this to you, but it probably was not part of the original text written by John. It's very ancient, probably added very soon after John's gospel was written. Um, the early church fathers knew it, but said that it was not part of the original uh, text written by the apostle John. Uh, I avoid preaching on it. And the ending of Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. That's interesting for those of you who are in Rosemount Bible Church, because we're going through the Gospel of Mark right now. And I asked uh, some time ago, I asked Robert, what are we going to do with the end of the Gospel of Mark? And I haven't had an answer on that yet. Um, I, I don't think that the end of the Gospel of Mark we find in our Bibles is really part of the original text. Those are the only two um, uh, uh, major um parts of the Bible of the New Testament, which we don't. Um, and just for your information, this is not new information. Um, the early church fathers discussed this. Erasmus, and we're gonna see him in a minute, who put together the first Greek New Testament in 1500 and something, um, he knew about these problems. So this is not something new. It's not as if we're changing the Bible, the Bible has been changed. Um, uh, these two doubtful passages, only two in the whole New Testament, were well-known throughout church history. Talking about Erasmus, 1466 to 1536, um, Erasmus was a Dutch biblical scholar. Um, in the time of the Reformation, um, Luther, um, who was German, and there was not in those days much difference between the Dutch and the Germans, um, Luther, Luther um, left the Catholic Church eventually. Erasmus stayed in the Catholic Church, but tried to reform it from the inside. And the first Greek uh, Bible, uh, Greek New Testament, the Novum Institutum, in 1516. Um, um, until then, the Latin text, the Vulgate, was the official inspired text in the Catholic Church. If you wanted to quote the Bible, if you wanted to argue from the biblical text, yeah, we had to go Jerome's, to Jerome's text uh, in Latin, not the Greek Bible, which is not that well known. Um, Erasmus's first printed Bible had several typographical errors, which he corrected in later editions. Uh, he lacked the Greek text for the last six verses of Revelation. He actually translated from, once again, not from, but from, he, he translated them from the, the Latin Vulgate because he didn't have a Greek text with the last six verses of Revelation. If that appears strange to you, remember that these were often scrolls that were rolled up. And so it's not strange that the last part of the scroll would get worn off, right? Um, um, he included readings from the Vulgate to avoid problems with Rome. Where his Greek New Testament differed from the Vulgate, uh, back in those days, uh, Rome was not very tolerant with people who dared disagree with them on anything and to avoid being burned as a heretic, um, Erasmus included some things in the Vulgate that he didn't really, didn't really want to include. And so the Textus Receptus, the received text, uh, which is popular today, today among some scholars, 
and, and among King James only believers. It was actually produced by Robert Estetien, a printer from Paris. Uh, it was the first time a printed Bible had verses. Uh, it was printed in 1450, called the, uh, um, called the, the, what am I doing here? Um, yeah, just to say that the Gutenberg Bible, which is the first Greek Bible done by Erasmus, uh, if you have one today, if you find one in the local bookstore, it's worth $35 million. There are not many of them around. Let's talk about harmonization. Um, this is one of the arguments that's used by people that you will hear on television on occasion. Um, I'm going to give you some examples. It's especially found in the Gospels, and there are reflexive harmonizations or deliberate harmonizations. Reflexive means error by error. Um, if you copy something out, you know, I've been in publishing and printing all my life, and um, believe you me, there are always typographical errors in every book. And in this PowerPoint presentation, I've seen two sometimes and I proofread it 15 times, I'm sure. I just found two errors. And so that is reflexive errors, errors that are there because we made a mistake when we were copying. Um, there's, a, there's a Greek manuscript of the Old Testament, which comes from the 12th century, which I find very interesting. At the end of the manuscript, the monk who was copying it wrote this. I just finished this manuscript. It's so cold that my hands are freezing and the ink in my ink wheel is freezing. I'm glad I'm finished. So it tells you something about the conditions in which these monks worked. And they sometimes copied by memory or copied something twice. Well, that's, that's, that's called reflexive harmonization. Um, and then there's deliberate harmonization, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. They tried to harmonize the books, the text of the four gospels. For instance, if in the gospel of Matthew, a few words are missing that are in the same story in the book of Mark. They inserted them in Matthew to make them the same. And this was particularly common among the Byzantine scholars, Byzantine scribes. I'm going to give you an example. In the book of Luke, chapter 5, verse 30, we read, The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Um, in the book of Mark, and I quote in the ESV here, in the book of Mark, we read, and the scribes and the scribes and Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So you see, Luke says that the Pharisees said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Mark says, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Mark talks about eating only, and Luke talks about eating and drinking. <laughs> that's not an error. That's not serious. I bet you the publican said a whole lot more than that. They probably went on for minutes about this. Um, Luke resumed what they said. Mark resumed a little bit more. That's all right. Um, that's the ESV. Some of you use the NIV translation. Not sure why, but you do that. Um, and yes, the NIV gets this right. Um, they, they translate, as you see in red here, what does he eat with tax collectors and sinners in the book of Mark, in the Gospel of Mark. But in the King James, if you look at it, when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? 
So you see that in the ESV and the NAIV, which are based on the older manuscripts, perhaps the more accurate manuscripts as far as I'm concerned, they didn't put the drink in because that's not in the oldest manuscripts. But the King James Version, which is based on Erasmus' works, um, put in drinketh. And we believe that the Byzantium scholars harmonized. It bothered them that words were not in Mark, that were in Luke. So they put those words in there. Now that's not that very serious. That's not that serious, is it? Because the fact that the Pharisees said they were drinking is inspired. That's part of God's inspired word. It's inspired in the book of Luke. I don't think it's inspired in the book of Mark, but it's inspired. So it's not a major error. It's a question of harmonization. But critical scholars who want to criticize the New Testament will, will grab hold of this and go on for pages and pages and argue and, and debate saying, see, they've changed the Bible. The Bible has changed. Well, it's harmonization. We know that people uh, copy manuscripts in the Western part of the Roman Empire, the Western manuscript family of manuscripts and the Byzantium manuscripts have a tendency to do harmonizations. There's a lot in the Gospel of, of, of Matthew. When we were going through, um, we did um, commentaries on the Gospels, and there were times when our translator said, why is this like this in the, in the English Bible, but our French Bible, which our French Bibles are largely based on the family of manuscripts, which are on the basis, which are, on the basis, which are based on the King James Version, um, on which the King James Version is, is, is uh, based. Um, why are these words, these words missing? And I would have to um, find some way of editing the text so that we could explain that. Here's another one that we run into more often. Um, in the ESV, we read um, in Romans 8.1, there is, therefore, there is no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, and so on. Uh, a great verse, very encouraging verse. The NIV gets it right. Therefore, there is therefore no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. But if you look at the King James Version, it says this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those, to them who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So you see, verse 1 of Romans 8 in the King James has this added text, those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and who also walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Why does the King James have those words and the NIV and the ESV do not have those words? Well, I think it's a, an, an, incident, an incident of accidental harmonization. Because those words, who, not, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, are in verse 4 of Romans 8. Can you imagine a monk copying the book of Romans by hand, who probably has copied the Bible often enough that they know part of it by heart, and I expect that this verse, uh, these first verses of Romans 8, or uh, Romans 8, which are so precious to us, how am I doing fine? Yeah, I'm all right, I'm wise, who are so precious to us, um, they knew them by heart, 
And do you suppose that by accident, he copied by memory what was in verse four into verse one by accident? Is, is that possible? Is that probable? Is that a way of explaining what happened? And, and so a lot of the Byzantium um, manuscripts dating from 10th to 12th century have these words added in um, in the manuscripts, which are taken in verse four and added in verse one. And that's why your ESV Bibles, your NIV Bibles, uh, don't have those words there that King James does that are based on different text families. Now, is that serious? Does that make us doubt God's word? Frankly, I'm glad they're not really there in Romans 8. I'm glad there's no condemnation because I'm in Jesus Christ. But if having no condemnation meant that I walked not after the flesh, but after the spirit, I'll have to confess to you that sometimes I walk after the flesh, not after the spirit. And I'm glad that when I do, there's still no condemnation because I'm in Jesus. I'm in Christ, right? So those words probably don't belong there. I'm glad they're not there. But the fact of the matter is that they are inspired words. They are inspired in verse 4. They just shouldn't be copied into verse 1. Those are examples, two examples of harmonization. So I am, I brought them up because if you're listening to TV, if your kids are listening to TV and they talk about how the, the, the Bible's been changed over the years and we're not quite sure what the text should be, that's not true. That's not true. We've analyzed these 5,800 so Greek texts. Um, there's enough evidence that goes back over 1800 years with these manuscripts, 1700 years with these manuscripts, uh, we can tell when mistakes were made. And when we have a, a majority, especially of the older texts that go in a certain direction, when we understand why changes were made, how they were made by accident or deliberate, deliberately, it's very, very sure that what we have as a Greek text today is extremely accurate, 99.995%. And what is left is very, is very, very uh, unimportant. Uh, there are four major versions of the Greek New Testament, which I consult regularly. There's the Textus Receptus, which you talked about, which Erasmus uh, initiated, but was finished a thousand years later, a hundred years later. There's a majority text, which is based largely on the Byzantium manuscripts. There's the Nestle Bible Society family of, of, of uh, Greek. New Testament, which has updated several times, which is accepted as authority by most scholars today. Um, I talked about Peter Williams the last time we were talking together, who besides his work on, um, on the New Testament, also has co-authored uh, a new version of the Greek New Testament. Interesting listening to him talk about it. Uh, it was published by Cambridge University and by Crossway Books. I love it. Um, at Piplicacion Chrétien, the publishing house where I'm still involved, we're, being talk we're talking about doing a fresh translation of the French Bible. And they're asking me to head that up. And I've said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm too old. And uh, I know I have some type, of, some type of dementia setting in. So I don't think I'm the person to do that. I could help, but I don't want to do it. But um, I'm very pleased with what I'm seeing what Peter Williams and his team have done with this new Greek text. But when you compare it to the others, there's not enough difference to even worry about. Very, 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 very minor. So those are the four major versions of the Greek New Testament. And there's no doctrinal issue. There's no historical issue. There's nothing important that's really different between them. E.A. Johnson wrote it this way. 
If the New Testament has indeed been changed, either intentionally or by slow evolution of variants, the manuscript evidence leaves us with no evidence of it. Manuscripts dating to the second century, even within decades of their original authorship, preserve a text substantially no different to those copies penned hundreds of years later, which themselves hold no substantial differences to those translations today, which work to faithfully, faithfully render the original text. Over 25,000 manuscripts in Greek, Latin, Syriac, Aramaic, Coptic, Gothic, Ethiopic, and more languages have shown no trace of doctrinally competing lines that Christians today would find foreign in their own Bibles. Even the most radically skeptical scholars in the field of textual criticism, while theorizing a more wholesale corruption, are forced to acknowledge that such a corruption cannot be demonstrated. Rather, they must point towards existing variants and surmise the potential for more outside the manuscript data. Um, even using the existing data, even such scholars as Bark Ehrman are willing to concede. And remember, Bark Ehrman is one of the most well-known um, skeptics today, um, doesn't have a lot of respect for the Bible in many ways. Um, Bark Ehrman recently wrote this, really amazingly wrote this, because he's a skeptic. He said, textual scholars have enjoyed reasonable success at establishing, to the best of their abilities, the original text of the New Testament, indeed, barring extraordinary new discoveries or phenomenal alterations of method, it is virtually, virtually inconceivable that the character of our printed Bible, New Testament, of our printed Greek New Testament, will ever change significantly. There's one of the leading skeptics in the world alive today who's admitted that our Greek New Testament isn't going to change. It's, I'm going to say it's right on. Has our Bible changed? It hasn't. We can trust it. We can put our faith in the Bible. It's God's word. I'm going to close with one argument. Um, I have the privilege right now of doing something I want to do. I've been wanting to do for many years, but I never had the courage to do it. I'm teaching Psalm 119 in two different churches. They permitted me to do uh, 22 sermons, um, one sermon on each of the, uh, what, do you, what would you call them? We say strophe in French. What is it in English? I'm not going to say verses because there are 176 verses in Psalm 119, and there are eight, um, whatever that is, strophe, uh, of eight verses each. And uh, Stanzas, thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and um, uh, they're allowed to to do one. Uh, I preach neath uh, those two churches um, one Sunday a month, and they're going to give me 22 months to to do that. They're very patient with me. I, I've been amazed over the years of the Psalm 119. God's word is wonderful, and the Lord God of heaven. The infinite creator, wise, all-powerful, inspired his word and gave us his word. He formed authors, controlled their lives, their education. And as they wrote with their background and their background and their language, it comes through, their, uh, comes through the Bible, the, the portion of the Bible they wrote. It's not a dictation. 
like we used to do in French classes. I had a French teacher who strapped one hand, strapped each hand one time for every mistake we made in a French dictate. Um, I learned how to write French properly under her motivation. Um, we don't do that in schools anymore. But the Bible isn't a dic is not a dictation. Uh, people wrote using their own vocabulary, their own minds, their own background. But it was inspired by God, and, and he controlled those choices. And those two uh, thoughts are somewhat, somewhat contradictory. Well, I'm sorry, but that's the way it was. Um, but God wrote his word, and he gave us perfect word. It's perfect. And you want to tell me that the infinite, all-powerful God who spent so much effort writing his word was unable to preserve it? <laughs> of course, if he, if he took the time and the effort to write his word, it's ridiculous to think that he was unable to preserve it. And I'm convinced that the word of God as we have, our English translations are in general accurate, um, excellent, um, and people like me like to, might like to argue over a word here and there, but it's not really significant in any way. It's usually a waste of time. Um, our Lord God, we can be thankful that we have God's excellent word. Every week, every month when I preach through one of those uh, stanzas in, in, in Psalm 119, I, my heart is blessed and I'm excited about what God's word is. And I'm glad that God not only gave us his word, but he preserved it for us. I think we now need to take a break. Uh, so you can, unless someone has a brief question, and, it, and as long as it's not a hard question, uh, I'll, make some, I'll make some attempt to answer it. Maybe five minutes and then we'll take a 10 minute break and then we'll let David get going. I have a question, Doug. When you were talking about Nineveh, um, yeah. you had said that um, it, it was disputed if it was really there. So then I was wondering, how did they know where to dig? From what I've been reading, um, there was some tradition among the tribes that that's a part of um, Babylon, actually, modern modern uh, Persia, modern, modern uh, Iran, I'm sorry. Uh, that area was um, inhabited by nomadic tribes. And um, it was a huge tell, um, a mound. Um, and there was a tradition among some nomadic tribes that was an ancient city. And that it was, um, there was even some tradition among those tribes that it was Nineveh. And they were Muslim, and of course, the, the Muslims know something about the Old Testament history. And so there was some tradition there which came to through the years to become, uh, some of the uh, European scholars became aware of that. And the first uh, people who did an archaeological dig there were the, uh, the French in 1834, if my memory is right. Um, it's in my notes here. Um, and that's how it was discovered. So when they started that dig, they weren't sure what it was. There was some thought that it might be Nineveh and they discovered that that's what it was. Thank you. Uh, Doug, do you, are you taking question at the end of, of both sessions? I'm sorry, I didn't understand you. Are you taking questions? Will you be taking question at the end of the presentation of, of David Hume? I uh, will let David do that. But you will be answering questions. Um, I can do it right I can do it right now if you want because uh, I have a couple of questions that might take a long time so uh, I mean, I think that maybe we could go to the break and then come back and then uh, at the okay at the question session I will have the questions that uh, related to you the part that you yeah. just presented to us well the uh, hard yeah, question I'll let, if it's a hard question I'll let David answer yes <laughs> Doug, I have a question, a short question about uh, John 8, uh, 311, the woman caught in adultery. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it possible, even though it wasn't recorded in the earlier manuscripts, that this event actually did take place and perhaps was transmitted orally and written down later? That is my conviction. That's what I believe. Okay. I don't contest the historic, that it's historical. And uh, I've preached on it a few times. And when I preach on that, look, I can talk to you guys about that. I don't talk about that when I'm public in front of people at church. Okay. I mean, there are things you just don't say there. I mean, that, that, that could cause doubt in people's mind. So I don't, and I've been asked to preach in that passage and I've held my nose and preached on it. And um, I, I, one of the arguments that's made is that, you know, in the early church, and I'll stop after this, in the early church, um, some people recanted during the, um, during the persecutions. They were basically said, worship Caesar as God and deny Christ or you'll be thrown to the lions or crucified or whatever. And there were people who denied their faith. And then later they, um, they wanted to rejoin the church. And there's a great fight among early church leaders. Do we accept them back to the church or have they lost their salvation or never saved? And uh, we can't take them back to the church. They're, they're lost forever because they became uh, heretics or they, they, they lost their faith. And the theory among some people is that this portion was added to John chapter 8 to try to show how forgiving Jesus was, <laughs> to try to, as an argument. Now, I don't buy that. But if you do any, um, I get it back up with my camera. But if you do any reading on this, you'll find that argument is made. And that's an argument I don't made, that I don't accept. Okay. Well, thank you for your patience and your your uh, listening. And we're going to take a break so you can get those who can't live without coffee can have a coffee. I'll go get a. Sorry, Doug. Yeah. Could I interject? Yeah. Sorry, I had my hand up earlier, but yeah, I was go like, ahead. Yeah. Um, it's just just a quick question. Um, in passing, you talked about Emperor Claudius's second wife. Yes, that was was Jewish and accepted uh, Christ, but I've never come across that before. So I was wondering, what source did you get that information from? Suetonius. That's from Suetonius. It is. Yes, Thanks. I actually read it uh, three weeks ago. Okay, I mean, I, I'm a historian. I'm not an expert in, in Roman history. Yeah, sure. But yeah. like, uh, like there's a famous podcast called Emperors of Rome, and they've yeah. often talked about Claudius and the different wives. And I don't remember hearing that before. So it was a bit news to me. It took me a little bit by surprise, but I'll, I'll look into it. I'll look into it. If I'm wrong, you know, I have been wrong in my life. It has happened. Um, my wife tells me it happens often. So um, my email is douglas.virgin at gmail.com. It's not hard to remember. If I'm really wrong, you let me know. Well, here's here, and I'm not saying that you're wrong. It's just that in my mind, this is uh, very similar to the story of Constantine's wife, uh, 250 years later, who did, I think, go and look for pieces of the real cross yes. in Palestine. So yeah. I thought maybe you had conflated two things there. I don't know. That to me, that's, to me, that's uh, 200, 200 years, 250 yeah. years. Later, I guess. Yeah. 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 Okay. Thanks. I'll look it up. Thank you. Good. Okay, we're gonna go for a break. I'm gonna go get some grape juice. You can have your coffee. Uh, good. Okay. Okay. Yep. Where you get put on the list? Okay. It, it's available on YouTube. If you ever you uh, you were not able to. Uh, to... All right. So uh, let's get started. It's ten thirty-five on my clock, right, and then uh, uh, jump into the subject. All right, uh, so we're looking at, uh, as you can see from my 
PowerPoint looking at philosophy and the Christian student. I uh, thought coffee would be a great way to start. Um, so uh, what I want to look at today, I want to look at three points. Uh, first of all, uh, if we're going to ask the question, you know, can or even should a Christian study philosophy, which is my second point, you kind of have to start with what is philosophy. And so we're, we're going to do a, a, a quick um, survey or explanation of what just, just what we mean by philosophy, what it is. Uh, then we're going to ask the question, can a Christian study philosophy or, or should a Christian study philosophy? And then after that, look at the relationship between philosophy and uh, theology. Uh, before we get into the, the first question, though, I, was, I just want to point out uh, that some of these questions, that, that like this type of question that, that comes up today, in, and maybe for the last hundred years, this, this type of question has been debated uh, heavily in, in Protestant circles. Uh, part of it has to do with a form of with 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 a form of fideism, which is found both in religious uh, uh, circles and in scientific circles. So we, you can almost talk about uh, a form of religious fideism and a form of scientific fideism. Now, if those terms aren't familiar with for, for you, uh, religious fideism tends to look at philosophy as something that's borderline evil. It's it's borderline bad. It's it's very negative. Uh, and even some of the natural sciences are, are held under suspicion, okay? The idea of a religious fideism is that all knowledge, uh, if it's to be of any value, uh, it's accepted based upon faith, and, it, and many, many, and depending on the variance, because there are different variations of religious fideism, uh, you can go from extremes, whereas only the scriptures give knowledge, uh, or uh, you can't, or just the things such as, you know, we can't prove anything. We have to accept everything by faith. And so I accept Christian scriptures based on faith and I reject everything else. Also a faith-based claim. Uh, some forms of religious fideism will basically say something like, you know, one can know nothing about God, his world, or man, unless one believes the word of God. And often we have a form of blind faith in scriptures. Uh, and it's, I just want to point out at this point before I go any further, because I won't really coming back to this, this, this idea of a blind faith in scriptures is actually itself unbiblical. Uh, for example, we've talked about Acts in the last conference with Doug, and in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, one of the verses which I find very interesting in that, in fact, the, that chapter, which itself I find quite interesting, you, you find the author of Acts making the following comment. He says that the people of Berea were better than those of Thessalonica, or the word is actually more honorable than those of Thessalonica, because uh, after having heard Paul presenting the gospel, they went back to the Old Testament uh, 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 documents to verify what Paul was saying. So if we're paying attention to what's going on here, the, the author of Acts, uh, Luke, is saying that this group of skeptics who heard Paul speak and did not just take him at his word with blind faith, but went back to verify what he said, these people were more honorable than those from Thessalonica who just took Paul at his word and said, hey, you're Paul, you're right, uh, which might not seem that, might seem strange to us today. Hey, I don't take any, you know, I, I don't just hear somebody who um, arrives in our, you know, arrives in town as a conference speaker. I don't take them at their word. I go back and verify what they say. But of course, you know, Paul was uh, the author of half of the New Testament, uh, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so when we think about that, it, it is quite interesting to note that even this 
uh, uh, person, Paul, who, who wrote most of the New Testament, uh, we are told that it was honorable to question and, 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 and verify his claims. Uh, and so this idea of a blind faith, which doesn't take the time to, to verify what's being said by the authority figure who, who is presenting something for, as truth or belief, that idea of blind faith is actually against uh, scriptures themselves. And you know, uh, the book of Acts and the book of Luke uh, are, are quite, actually quite interesting uh, in that aspect where, where the author of Luke and Acts in both books is, tells us that they went and verified everything and, and talked with eyewitnesses to make sure that what they were saying was true. And so even there, there's this, this process of research that we see in, in the book of, that is used by the author of the book of Acts to put it together. So there are, there are many variations of this form of fideism, a blind faith in scripture, uh, ranging from a hard skepticism about all knowledge outside of scriptures to, the more, to a more philosophical uh, perspectivalism, okay, uh, which you'll find in the thoughts, for example, of, a, of people such as um, uh, Karl Barth or, uh, or Cornelius Van Til. Uh, Karl Barth's a, a well-known modern theologian, Cornelius Van Til, well-known modern or contemporary uh, a Christian a Reformed apologist. They both hold to forms of uh, what I would call Christian perspectivalism, and perspectivalism uh, is a term that is often used in relationship to Nietzsche or, or other uh, uh, atheists who who would uh, who also might be fit under a form of postmodernism. So there's a lot of terms there. I, I don't have time to get into them, unfortunately, at this point. Um, often this this view that this religious fideism uh, contrasts uh, the word of God with the mind of man. And I and I still remember um, uh, when I took off, uh, I left Trois-Rivières, I went down south to to um, North Carolina to go study for my master's in philosophy. And I, and I still remember having a, one, of the, one of the pastors on the elders board at the church. You know, I, I'm not, I, I think he was just, you know, in, in a caring way, uh, asking me if I was worried about, you know, the, the fact that I would be studying the mind of man, if that would draw me away from the mind of God. And, and so there was this, there, there's this idea that by studying philosophy, you can be drawn away from scriptures and drawn away from God. Uh, and, and that was a, it was a sincere question that I was asked, and and so we'll see we sometimes see this this rejection of or pushing away of philosophy as that's the mind of corrupted sinful man. What we should be concerned with is the word of God, which is which can never err. Um, so that's one version of fideism. You also have a, a, another form of fideism, which is kind of a scientific fideism. Uh, you might use the, today, the, the technical term, which, which would probably be more along the lines of scientism. And, and so this, this belief to a certain extent that um, only, the, only those truth statements which can be verified through the natural sciences are true. If it cannot be verified through the natural sciences, then, it can, that, then that statement cannot be true. That's a, that's a form of what we call hard scientism. If you want to know more about that, uh, J.P. Moreland actually just recently published a book on uh, a popular level book uh, to kind of help people understand what scientism is, the various forms of it, and how it is, uh, I, I would honestly say, how it is rather easily refuted. Um, and I can, if, if someone wants, if you want to, I can maybe pull that out. It's in my library over here somewhere. I can pull out and show it to you later. Uh, it's an excellent little popular level book to just to kind of help people deal with this notion, this this uh, what I would call almost a scientific fideism uh, that uh, which is essentially accepting only scientific claims as true. 
Um, usually when someone comes with that approach uh, for them, anything that has to do with faith or religion is, first of all, unverifiable, therefore necessarily uh, at worst false, at best personal opinion. So we end up having in this contemporary setting, we end up having this almost a war going on between people who hold to religion and people who hold to science. And it's often portrayed as they are at odds. There is an inherent contradiction between the two. And then that inherent contradiction is often exacerbated by the, the fact that if you look at the claims of evolutionists and you look at the claims of you know, uh, you know, six-day creationists, they seem to be in total opposition and 100% contradictory. And so even the claims of scientists versus theologians often seem to contradict each other and just makes it worse. So there, there's this appearance of conflict between science and religion. Now, uh, and, and, and I say appearance, uh, there a, lot of, a lot of contemporary uh, well-known uh, authors have, have, um, have capitalized on this appearance of, of conflict and try to kind of keep it going, uh, try to make it seem even more evident. Uh, now I say appearance, of course, because I am of the opinion that uh, it is nothing more than an appearance. Uh, there is, in fact, uh, I, I would, I'll start by saying this before we just, as we get into things, that there is, in fact, uh, no real conflict between philosophy or the natural sciences and religion. Uh, one of the ways of explaining this briefly would be to say that when we, when we talk about scriptures, we're talking about God's written revelation. And when we talk about the world, we talk about, uh, in theology, we talk about general revelation. God reveals himself through the things which he has created, and God reveals himself through his word. Now, since both of these have, this, have the same source, they both come from God himself, what we learn from them cannot contradict each other. What can contradict us itself are our interpretations of general revelation or our interpretations of uh, scripture. Our, our human interpretations can be contradictory, but then, of course, we are human and we tend to err. So, the question then, you know, can a Christian study philosophy? Uh, we're, we're going to look at what is philosophy. We're going to uh, ask, can or should we study it? And then we're going to talk about the relationship. And, and one last thing before I jump into what is philosophy. I thought it worth point. I thought it might be interesting just to point out that a really simple answer to this question and a borderline simplistic, but which is probably important for the Christians, the, the Christian student at least to understand is that if you look at the history of philosophy going as far back as the pre-Socratics and, and coming up to the, the, the current time, you, I, I would say that without much debate, almost 80 to 90% of all of the important philosophers, I'm not talking about, you know, there, there are plenty of philosophers out there that are less important. I would consider myself a much lesser important philosopher. But if you look at the really important ones, the ones have, who have changed the history of thought, 80 to 90% of them believe that God exists. And, and a good portion of those think that they can prove it. And we talked about that last time. So those great philosophers see no, don't tend to see a conflict between theology or, and philosophy. On top of that, what about the ones who studied it? Well, historically speaking, all of the early church fathers 
studied philosophy. Not only did all of the early church fathers study philosophy, all of the medieval Christian theologians studied philosophy. And usually they studied it prior to studying theology. On top of that, I can probably say with about a 99% certitude that almost all of the early uh, reformers from the 1500s all the way through the 1800s, all of them studied philosophy. And many of them, such as Philippe Melanchthon, who was an important early reformer, who, who did a, a lot of work on, the, um, on curriculum and on, on Christian education, Many of them often said that studying philosophy was an important and essential part of a pastoral training. Okay, and you can look at Melanchthon's work on education and how he brings philosophy in the study of the early Greek philosophers into Christian education as an essential part of it. Um, one of the, one of the and they, he wasn't the only one. Most of the early reformers went in that direction. Calvin did as well. In fact, Calvin, John Calvin's first published work was a commentary on on the Greek philosopher Seneca, and his work De Clementia. Uh, and in the Institutes, which I happen to have here on my desk, in the Institutes, on numerous occasions, Calvin actually will will get to a question. For example, let's talk about human nature. He'll say a few words, and then he'll say. If you want to go deeper into this subject, you got to read the philosophers because they have a lot to say on this more than what I can say here. And so Calvin constantly is sending us back to the philosophers, as did most early Reformed theologians. Now, if we move into the, 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 the philosophers that uh, many of the students today will be studying in SAGEP or maybe in university, we'll be looking at uh, people like René Descartes, uh, George Berkeley, John Locke, and so on. Well, interestingly enough, uh, almost every single one of these important philosophers were also Christians, at least in a broad sense. Uh, René Descartes was a Catholic, and he built his entire system with the purpose of defending the truth of Catholicism. Uh, George Berkeley was a Protestant. John Locke was a Protestant. Leibniz was a Protestant. Kant, though there is though there are some people who I think... Uh, uh, don't pay as much attention to Kant's writings as they should. Uh, they tend to deny that he had anything, he had any belief in God. He was in fact, a, he, he grew up in fact as a pietist. And part of the purpose of his system, though it ended up bringing skepticism and fideism into, into being, uh, part of the purpose was to save religion from the skepticism of David Hume. And so even Kant was, what did, was working it to a certain extent to try and protect or, or defend Christian belief. Uh, contemporary, I, I should also mention Kierkegaard and, and Hegel. I actually have one of uh, a small uh, French version of Hegel's arguments for demonstrating the existence of God. Uh, Kierkegaard, well-known uh, Protestant existentialist, uh, an important philosopher. Uh, today, some of the most important uh, philosophers doing work in epistemology, metaphysics, are Christian philosophers. I could mention Alvin Plantinga. Alvin Plantinga's works are studied in secular universities. He is a reformed Christian philosopher. I can mention Paul Copin, also a reformed Christian uh, evangelical philosopher, and, and others such as Angus Manouge, J.P. Moreland, William Lane Craig, Richard, Richard Swinburne, who's now Greek Orthodox, uh, and uh, Tim McGrew, uh, C.S. Lewis, Norman Geisler, uh, John Warwick Montgomery, who is a Lutheran, uh, and then uh, just a whole slew of Catholic philosophers. So the, the, 
uh, for a Christian who's going to study philosophy, there is actually quite a bit of precedent uh, for them to study philosophy. That, I think, is kind of the easy answer. Can Christians study philosophy? Well, they do. So uh, don't be worried about it. Let's just get into it and enjoy it. But let's actually answer this question from a more theoretical, perhaps, uh, approach. So let's look at what is philosophy, first of all. I'm going to look at some ancient approaches to this. Plato, in, in his book, his dialogue, The Phaedo, uh, says, the one aim of those who practice philosophy in the proper manner is to practice for dying and death. Now, that sounds morbid, okay? Just read like that. Hey, we're going to practice for death. Uh, that's what philosophy is all about. Well, put into the context of Plato and, and Socrates and their view of the forms, the forms are essentially uh, what later Christian philosophers would call the div divine ideas. The forms were these eternal, immutable, uh, you might say, uh, blueprints for everything that exists. And I don't want to get too deep into, into metaphysics, but when he's saying that the, the, the aim of philosophy is to practice for dying and death, he believes that after death, the person who is living the philosophical life uh, will have the possibility, opportunity, and pleasure of gazing upon the divine ideas. They will be united to the divine. And so philosophy for Plato is this preparation for the afterlife when he will gaze upon the divine. So I, I kind of summarize it here, give you some quotes if you want to read the Phaedo. The goal of the philosopher is the, is the pursuit of wisdom by the purification of the soul from all carnal and earthly desires and affections. In this way, he comes to know the just itself, the beautiful itself, the good itself, and all the other immutable eternal forms, and in fact, the divine itself. That's what the purpose of philosophy is, to know the just, the good, the beautiful, in fact, God. According to Plato, that's what it is. That, and that, by the way, is why um, a number of early church fathers were Platonists, because they studied Plato, and they realized that what Plato was saying from a pagan perspective agrees very much with what Paul was saying in the Word of God. If you think, for example, about Paul, who says that you know, he would much prefer to, 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 to be in the presence of God, but it's expedient that I, I stay alive for your benefit. You know, to me, for me to, to live as Christ and to die as gain, would say Paul. And, and Socrates would say, uh, though he knew not Christ, Socrates would probably say, you are dead on. That's exactly right. That is the philosophic life. Um, Aristotle in metaphysics, he says this, uh, it is right also that philosophy should be called knowledge of the truth. For the end of theoretical knowledge is truth, while that of practical knowledge is action. And so practical knowledge would include ethics or morality. Theoretical knowledge is the study of anything uh, in, in, what it, in as much as it is and what it is and what are its causes or principles. Uh, Giovanni Riel, who wrote, one, I think, one of the most interesting commentaries on the metaphysics of Aristotle to be published in, in recent times. He says, philosophy, on the contrary, has as its object an inquiry concerning reality. Not insofar as it is determined to this or that particular reality, but rather as it considers reality itself. Reality qua reality, or being qua being. Now that word qua is Latin, and essentially can be translated as the word as. So it's very much this idea, you might even say reality per se. Reality as reality, or being as being. 
And so that's what the, this idea of metaphysics is and, and philosophy to a certain extent for, for, Aristotle, for Aristotle is the study of being as being, not this dog, but the nature, a canine nature. And, and even let's go beyond canine nature and let's study the divine. And in fact, for, for Aristotle, the highest knowledge would be the study of the first cause, God. Martin Heidegger, here's another, here's another, here's a more con, uh, contemporary philosopher who, who lived in the early, early 1900s. Uh, there's a lot I could say about him. I'm not going to get into all of it. This is what he says in his book, Introduction to Metaphysics. Philosophizing means asking, why are there beings at all instead of nothing? Or, or why is there nothing? Why is there something rather than nothing? Actually, asking this means venturing to exhaust to question thoroughly uh, the inexhaustible wealth of this question by unveiling what it demands that we question. Whenever such a venture occurs, there is philosophy. Now, Martin Heidegger is notoriously difficult. Uh, in fact, many of the important German uh, modern philosophers, uh, Hegel and, and, and following are notoriously difficult. Uh, Kant as well is difficult to understand. Uh, however, Heidegger, uh, one, he has become very influential uh, in, in contemporary times with the idea that philosophy is simply a questioning. It's, an, it's a questioning of reality, uh, not a seeking for answers per se, just a continual at questioning. And, 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 and so it's from Heidegger to a certain extent that we get this idea that um, the, the, it's, it's the trip or the voyage which is more important than arriving at where you're going. Okay, and that, that idea we find in, in Aristotle, sorry, not in Aristotle, in Heidegger. And then uh, I have in my doctoral uh, research uh, on the question of being in Aristotle, uh, a lot of contemporary Aristotelian philosoph uh, uh, philosophers, people who study Aristotle now, uh, if they've been influenced by Heidegger, they tend to read Heidegger back into Aristotle, which is kind of unfortunate because Aristotle would have thoroughly disagreed with Heidegger on that point. But for them, for Heidegger, philosophy is just questioning, a continual questioning. Uh, here's, here's Joseph Pieper. If you want an interesting book, not too long, in, uh, that gives a, a Catholic perspective on philosophy and the importance of it for society, I would suggest Joseph Pieper. Uh, the book's called In Defense of Philosophy. It's not very long, but he, he, he gives us th these quick definitions here from Schelling, Fitch, and Hegel. Uh, Schelling calls philosophy the science of the eternal and primal forms of all things. Very sounds very Platonic. Uh, Hegel, sees philosophy as knowing the absolute. Again, this sounds very uh, in, in line with ancient thought. Uh, or Fitched states that philosophy anticipates the totality of all experience. Joseph Pieper goes on uh, for himself to say, to engage in philosophy means to reflect on the totality of things we encounter in view of their ultimate reasons. Uh, another way of saying this would be the, the, the purpose of philosophy is to ask, why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, and philosophy thus understood is a meaningful, even necessary endeavor with which the spirit man, the spiritual being, cannot dispense. And, and so for Pieper, uh, philosophy is this, uh, and Pieper has a bit of, in, of Heideggerian influence in him, even though he was very skeptical and, and critical of Heidegger. Um, but he has this idea of opening up to reality and, and exploring reality and and trying to understand where it comes from and why it's there, the, the ultimate reasons for the existence or the being 
of reality. Here's some, here's some other um, definitions of philosophy. Here's David Noggle. He, is a, he, he was, uh, or is still is perhaps, professor of philosophy at Dallas Baptist University. Uh, in his little book, uh, you can see it quoted there called Philosophy, a Student's Guide. It's just a small little introduction. He says, I define Christian philosophy as faith-seeking understanding. Now, this goes back to Anselm um, and, and, and even Augustine, to that extent, to that, for that matter. And then, he, and then talk, with Christian philosophy, he then goes in and makes it a bit more explicit. He says, first of all, is that unless you believe, you will not understand. So belief renovates reason, grace restores nature, and faith renews philosophy. Second, he says, Christian philosophy is essentially Christian faith seeking philosophical understanding. So, and, and this notion is fairly popular today, where philosophy for a Christian is the Christian's uh, seek, uh, you know, uh, attempt to understand their faith. Mark Foreman, uh, professor, also a, a Protestant evangelical professor, he, uh, professor of philosophy at Liberty University. Again, I don't know if he's still there. The, uh, Liberty University recently uh, let go a number of their, a, a good portion of their department of philosophy. So, but he was there when he published this book, Prelude to Philosophy. Uh, he says, philosophy is the critical examination of our fundamental beliefs concerning the nature of reality, knowledge, and truth, and our moral and social values. Now this this is a very this is an approach to philosophy which is very affected by worldview thinking and so we're going we'll study what a worldview is and look at the different elements of it and that again is a very popular view of philosophy uh, today. Uh, here's a different one, uh, and this is more of the ancient perspective. So what is philosophy itself? Well, let's look at the word. Philosophy in English uh, is is actually an anglicization of the combination of two Greek words philia and Sophia. The word philia means love, friendship, or the desire for. Sometimes it's translated into English as brotherly love. Uh, for, for example, you think of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Uh, now, philia itself uh, is often used by the, by the Greek philosophers, and, and C.S. Lewis talks about this, to talk about just friendship in general, not so much brotherly love. And so here's a quote from C.S. Lewis's uh, Four Loves, which I also have sitting here somewhere on my desk. Uh, he says, to the ancients, friendship or philia seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life in the school of virtue. Uh, and, and that was, and the reason why they, they, they saw this as the highest uh, of, all the, of the, all the different types of love is that it was not necessary for life. You don't need friends to survive. You, you, need a, you need to have erotic love in order to propagate your species. You need to have um, other types of love, perhaps uh, uh, political uh, grouping, perhaps, but you don't need friendship. Friendship goes beyond, and it's something that's extra. It's almost like a cherry on top of a sundae. And so they saw that as divine because it was more than just your regular natural loves that the animals have, Okay. Now, philia is one word that is used, and it, was, it became very common in philosophy to use philia in relationship to Sophia to talk about what the philosopher did. And so Sophia means wisdom. And then you put these two together, and you've got philia, the love of or desire for, Sophia, wisdom. And uh, in, in I, don't, I, I guess I would put this in uh, as uh, in uh, philosophical myth or origin stories you know everyone today is all excited about 
Marvel original stories or DC comics and their original stories of their, their uh, favorite heroes. Well, if you go back to philosophy and look at our original stories, uh, we often go back to some of the earlier uh, pre-Socratics and the, 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 they were being called sophists, okay? Not in a bad sense, but in a good sense. Meaning sophists, they are people who have or have wisdom. They're wise men. That's what Sophia means. However, uh, so some of the earlier philosophers, um, I believe it was Pythagoras, uh, from memory here, uh, said, whoa, don't call me a wise man. I, I, I don't pretend to have wisdom. However, I do love wisdom, and I desire wisdom, and I want wisdom. So don't call me a sophist. Call me a philosopher, a person who loves or tends towards and desires to have wisdom. Now, this should also ring a bell for anyone who's read Proverbs where Solomon portrays wisdom calling for us and asking us to come towards her in the streets. Uh, this, by the way, is why, and interestingly enough, in scriptures, jumping off of Proverbs, uh, oftentimes when we talk about wisdom, we talk about Christ, and Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is the Logos in John chapter 1, in John chapter 1 verse 1. And so many early Christian philosophers, such as Justin Martyr, they actually would say Christians are the true philosophers because Christians are the ones who truly love wisdom. In other words, if God, if Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God, if he is the Logos, he is that, he is that wisdom which philosophers should be desiring. And, and so many early Christians saw Christianity as a form of philosophy, a way of life, which was a pursuit of wisdom, divine wisdom. And there's a lot more I could say here. Uh, in Plato, the word eros, which today is often taken as almost exclusively uh, sexual, but in Plato, the word eros is actually used just for a very strong, passionate desire for something. And so he will actually use that word eros, which is neurotic love, as a, to, to describe the type of love that the philosopher has for the divine. Of course, we, we, we don't call uh, philosophy erosophy, it's, it's philosophy, so we, we use philia as the Greek word for love in this case. So that's what philosophy is. Philosopher then would be a person who desires love's wisdom, but what is wisdom? We, we still have that question to answer. What is wisdom? What is this wisdom that the philosopher desires? Well, for ancient Greek thinkers, uh, Wisdom was knowledge that is both theoretical, seeking to understand what a thing is through its causes, and practical, seeking to understand how to act rightly, create, or build. And, and so we, early Greek philosophers divided wisdom into these two categories, theoretical and practical. Practical is how you live, but not just how you live. So it's not just moral philosophy. It's also how to build things, how to create things. So a basket weaver has practical knowledge. A Contractor has practical knowledge. A mechanic has practical knowledge. They understand how to do things to, to work manually and do it rightly. Uh, scientists or people who study uh, nature for the sake of knowledge and, and by, uh, by implication, philosophers uh, and even to a certain extent, theologians would be pursuing theoretical knowledge. Now, theoretical knowledge, again, it's, it's just, it's basically the idea of understanding something through its causes, but it's also something that's not practical per se. And so if you go into the, some of the early reformed theologians, you're going to see there's actually kind of a debate about theology. Is theology practical or theoretical? 
most people, uh, Thomas Aquinas included, but if you look at, for example, Francis Turretin, they will end up saying, well, it's kind of both. Theology is a theoretical knowledge about God, which has practical implications. And this is, in fact, what many philosophers would describe as philosophy. So here's the definition I would, uh, you know, I, I didn't give you guys all of the definitions of philosophy throughout history, to give you a couple interesting ones there. Uh, here's what I would use to def define philosophy. De philosophy is the desire for and the pursuit and acquisition of the truth concerning all that in any way is. So understanding each thing through its causes, principles, and final ends, that towards which it tends. It's an action which ends in intellectual rest and contentment, thus, against Heidegger, not a perpetual questioning, but a questioning which ends in understanding. It's, it, we, we, we end up in rest. That's the end of philosophy. That's the purpose of philosophy. And, and, this, is, and, and, and this is a very ancient view uh, that I'm proposing here, not a very contemporary view. For contemporary philosophers, it's, it's just a perpetual unrest. But for early Greek and, and medieval philosophers, philosophy was, yes, a bit of unrest. It was this questioning, but it was a questioning which ends in contentment and rest. Um, and for, for many uh, Christian theologians, they took that and, and, and took that a step further and said, yeah, so in, 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 that means that in a certain sense, philosophy should end in theology, the contemplation of God. Uh, what, some, so just a couple of comments here. Sometimes we use philosophy uh, in, in other ways, the word philosophy. Sometimes it can be used as the attempt to study and systematically articulate what one understands about any given subject by grasping it's that subject's causes and principles and ends. So we'll talk about, if you're studying theology, you'll talk about the philosophy of ministry. You may talk, if you're studying science, you may talk about the philosophy of science. If you're studying history, you may talk about the philosophy of history and so on and so forth. I mean, just philosophy of, followed by just about any domain of study. And you've got this, uh, this, this domain of thought, which overlooks that particular study and talks about how it should be done and how you and how it how it works and so on that's one other way of using the word philosophy sometimes we'll talk about you know what is your philosophy of life uh, anyone who's had a job interview if you if it's uh you know for maybe like working at a bank or something they, they may ask you something like hey what is your philosophy of life so the next thing we've got to ask is what is the starting point of philosophy now again there are some major differences between contemporary philosophy and ancient medieval philosophy uh, here is Aristotle's perspective uh, in the metaphysics. It is owing to their wonder that men both now begin and at first began to philosophize. And a man who is puzzled and wonders thinks himself ignorant. Whence even a lover of myth is in a sense a lover of wisdom. For myth is composed of wonders. Therefore, since they philosophized in order to escape from ignorance, evidently they were pursuing science in order to know and not for any utilitarian end, which is why Aristotle and many uh, philosophers following him are, are known for, to have said that philosophy is for no purpose or you know, it, it is useless, you might say in quotation marks. You know, why do you study philosophy? Well, I, I don't study it for anything other than to study philosophy, uh, to, to gain knowledge of it. So it doesn't have a utilitarian end, it's an end in itself, which is a whole other interesting question. Um, but for these ancient philosophers, philosophy begins in, begins in wonder. And uh, you could probably portray this as the child who, 
who sees a caterpillar crawling across the ground and, and just becomes totally um, amazed by this or or the or a person who walks outside and is just blown away by the beauty of, of the of flowers or trees or the, or the stars and for Aristotle that's where philosophy begins it begins in this wonder at seeing things which just blow your mind uh, in many contemporary in some of the contemporary continental thought such as I mentioned Heidegger uh, they, they often have uh, philosophy beginning in a form of existential angst uh, a worry or fear uh, uh, or, or something along those lines. Uh, I, I will admit I tend to prefer the, the ancient approach to the beginning of philosophy. So it begins in wonder, uh, a desire to understand. So with those ideas in mind about what philosophy is, can or should we study philosophy? Now I, I, I will say just, just before I jump in here, I think that the, um, the, uh, the easy answer is yes and uh, with a great sense of urgency. Let's look at, there are two questions that we need to ask when we get into this. First of all, is it possible to be a Christian and not philosophize? Uh, now this, interestingly enough, to be a Christian uh, is a subgroup, you might say, of to be a human. So we could ask, is it possible even to be a human and not philosophize? And if the answer to the second question is it is that you cannot be human and not philosophize, then forcibly, you, if you're a Christian, I mean, other, unless you're not human, you must philosophize. So let's look at some of these questions here. Aristotle, quoted by, in, a, in a work that is now lost, but which was quoted by Alexander, he said this, if someone were to say that one should not philosophize, then since to philosophize is both to inquire into the very question whether one should philosophize or not, and also to pursue philosophical contemplation, by showing that each of them is proper for a man, we shall wholly refute the view stated. So he's essentially presenting an argument here, which, which, is, which, is, which is designed to show the incoherency of someone who says, uh, you should not philosophize. By making that statement, you are in fact making a philosophical statement. You are in fact asking a philosophical question. Note the question here, to philosophize is both to inquire into the very question whether one should philosophize or not, and also to pursue philosophical question, contemplation. So as soon as you ask that question, can or should a Christian study philosophy or do philosophy or philosophize? As soon as you ask that question, you have begun doing philosophy you have started philosophizing and if you then proceed to answer that question and perhaps even give a reason for the answer that you give well at that point you are doing philosophy and so aristotle here is just pointing out in fact uh, you cannot actually even ask that question without doing philosophy but let's not stop with aristotle i want to mention john davenant and, and two of the people that i'll be referring to quite frequently throughout the rest of this uh, presentation are John Davenant, Davenant, and Thomas Aquinas. John Davenant, uh, you can see his his life was from 1572 to 1641, was a very important uh, reformed theologian. Uh, he was uh, significant at the Synod of Dort, and he, he wrote a number of imp important books, amongst them a commentary on the book of Colossians, which is two volumes long, and which you can download for free uh, probably from Internet Archive or from uh, Google Books. 
And, and they are, it is an excellent commentary on Colossians. Uh, he has an entire section just on the, the Colossians chapter two, verse eight, which is significant because that is the one verse where Paul says, beware of philosophy. Okay. So John Davenant will interact with that and try to explain that verse. And uh, I, I will note, uh, I'm using John Davenant, one, because he's a Protestant. He, he's an important Reformed theologian, but also because his understanding of the, that verse is actually fairly common among Christian theologians from the very beginning uh, with the early patristic th thought all the way up and through to the, to the present day. So his interpretation of Colossians 2.8 is fairly uh, common. I could have, and I'll mention this as well for anyone who might be interested, I could have used, and I, I, I wanted to, a part of me really wanted to jump into that, uh, a work by an early Greek Cappadocian father named Basil of Caesarea. He actually wrote a book, um, which, which the title sometimes varies depending on how people translate it. It essentially, uh, the, the title of the book is essentially uh, why young men or young people should study Greek literature. Okay, and so this, this early Greek Cappadocian father uh, is, is giving arguments as to why they should. I thought I might use him, but I don't, I don't think I'll have time. So John Davenant says this. If therefore the apostle had condemned and rejected philosophy, he would verily have rejected the light of reason and would have cast great injury upon God, the author of it. John Davenant is, is, is like I said, quite orthodox in this. This is the typical early Protestant view on philosophy. And his point is this, if the apostle was condemning philosophy outright, you know, beware of philosophy, then he would be basically saying what God created, the human being with a natural light of reason, the ability to, to look at the world and understand the, what things about the world, he would basically, God would basically reject, or Paul would be rejecting God's creation. Okay, and, and who, God is the creator of human beings. It is God who created man with a desire to understand truth. Uh, it's not something that Aristotle describes by the men as men by nature desire to know, or in some translations, deny or desire to know the truth. Okay, to, to deny philosophy altogether would be to reject the light of reason and ca cast injury upon the author or creator of man with natural reason. He continues, they therefore who desire philosophy itself, and I like this way of, I love his way of expressing himself, to be exploded from the schools of Christians are either altogether ignorant or have it in view to hide their ignorance among the common ignorance of all. Or they are wicked and desire to expose us, stripped of all advantage from learning, untaught and defenseless to artful and armed enemies. It's important to note, this is in 15, he's writing this end of the 1500s, beginning of the 1600s, okay? And uh, I mentioned Philip Melanchthon earlier. Uh, I have his uh, Common Places or, or Loki Communist right here. This is the first edition of it. Uh, you can get a collection published by, I believe, uh, Cambridge of his work in relationship to education and philosophy. And Philip Melanchthon in the early 1500s, uh, during Martin Luther's own lifetime and following the death of Martin Luther, is constantly talking about the importance of Christian uh, uh, that Christians should be studying philosophy. Um, we know from letters that were written uh, during the early Reformed period that in most of the Reformed universities and colleges, philosophy was one of the main subjects of study. 
uh, Peter Martyr Vermigli, an important early reformed theologian and professor, uh, taught, uh, and I don't have it sitting on my desk right now, but he taught the uh, Nicomachean ethics to his pastoral students uh, in, to help them understand human nature, how humans act, and what they pursue. And, and by but already, by the time we get to, to, to the, uh, the, the publication of this book by Davenant, there are already some Christians who are saying, we need to get rid of philosophy. We should not be teaching philosophy in the schools. And so John Davenant here presents a couple of reasons to say, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. People who want to get philosophy out of the school, it's either because they themselves are ignorant and they, just, and they want to hide their ignorance amongst the common ignorance of all, right? They, they don't want anyone else to study philosophy so that they don't appear to be ignorant or they're wicked. And, and I find that quite interesting. This is something that C.S. Lewis would later say, and I'm going to bring that quote up a bit later. Why are they wicked? Because they want Christians to be unarmed in the face of people who would deny the Christian faith or orthodox theology. He's view, John Davenant views philosophy as one of the weapons that a Christian has in his arsenal to defend the Christian faith against either heretics or atheists, agnostics, and other religions. To, to therefore say the Christian should not study philosophy is to take away from him by force one of his weapons, one of his, one of his means of defense. C.S. Lewis. Uh, which, by the way, and you'll note here the second one, this is from an article called Learning in Wartime, uh, written in the 1940s. Uh, if you don't go on thinking rationally, you will think irrationally. Note how that sounds very similar to the comment by Aristotle, where to deny philosophy is to do philosophy, but to do it poorly. And, and so at this point, you might actually say the question should not be, can or should a Christian study philosophy? The question should be, are they going to philosophize well or poorly? Okay, the study of philosophy will allow them to, to, to do philosophy well. If they don't study it, they will do philosophy poorly. Now that might sound strange, but let's, let's think about a different example. For, take for example, someone who wants to run. So they want, they want to get involved in, 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 in running, uh, running races or, or, or uh, marathons, okay? One of the things that you have to do in order to learn how to run well, I used to play soccer a lot, and I actually need to get back in shape, so I'm going to have to start doing this myself. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I played soccer, one of the things you have to learn is how to breathe properly. Now, that just seems strange, doesn't it? I mean, we, people breathe naturally. I mean, you, you don't think about how to breathe. You, you know, you, you, most people don't sit around thinking, I got to breathe. Okay, breathe in, breathe out. People don't do that. We just breathe naturally. But wait a second. If you want to learn how to run a marathon and run a marathon well, if you want to be a good, uh, for example, soccer player, you have to learn how to breathe well, how to breathe properly. And if you don't, you will not be able to keep up with those who have learned how to breathe properly. So to take, take that and put it back on philosophy, people philosophize by nature. As Aristotle said, all men desire to know truth. The question then becomes not, do we philosophize or not? It becomes, do we philosophize well or not? 
we in fact should be learning philosophy so that rather than thinking irrationally, we are thinking rationally, as C.S. Lewis would say. Or in the second quote here, uh, which very, sounds very much like the, the quote from Davenant, which I mentioned earlier, to be ignorant and simple now, in other words, not to be able to meet the enemies on their own ground, would be th to throw down our weapons and to betray our uneducated brethren who have, under God, no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. This is a, one of my one of my one of my my um, professors' early, favorite quotes. Good philosophy must exist if for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be answered. This actually makes me think of a. I used to read a lot of Louis L'Amour. Uh, I don't know if you guys know who Louis L'Amour is. He's a, he wrote Western books, and one of the things that he would constantly constantly mention is that if only the evil men have weapons, who will defend men who are just? Good people need to have weapons in order to defend themselves. Otherwise, they will be entirely at the, at the mercy of evil men who have guns anyways, because they, are, they intend evil. And this is something like what C.S. Lewis is saying. He's talking to pastors and, and other academics and saying, look, if we throw down our arms now, who's going to defend everyone else in the churches who don't have time to study philosophy? The person who works in a, in a garage, the person who works in a machine shop, the person who's a carpenter who works on a, on, on a, who works as as a, um, a contractor who doesn't have time to study philosophy and and, and if, if we stop studying philosophy, who will defend them from the attacks of intellectual attacks of the heathen? And so, very much in a way, in the line of John Davenant, this earlier reformer, C.S. Lewis is saying philosophy has got to be part of a good education. Christians should, in fact, they are they they are almost morally required to study philosophy. But wait, I want to come back to Martin Heidegger. Because Martin Heidegger, I quoted him earlier on what philosophy is. In that same book, Introduction to Metaphysics, he says this. A quote unquote, Christian philosophy is a round square and a misunderstanding. To be sure, one can thoughtfully question and work through the world of Christian experience. That is the world of faith. That is then theology. Philosophy for originally Christian faith is foolishness. Okay, now why is that? He's going to suggest that the reason why Christian, a quote-unquote Christian philosophy is foolishness is because the Christian already has ready-made answers to the questions that philosophers typically ask. So, for example, if you ask any Christian, even quite young, you know, I could probably have, bring my kids in here and ask them this question, why does the universe exist? They would answer, because God made it. And then Martin Heidegger would say, see, you can't properly ask the question because you've already got a ready-made answer. So therefore, there is no Christian philosophy. Now, uh, some philosophers who were contemporaries with Martin Heidegger uh, would actually respond to that and refute that. I, I've written a bit about it, if you want. Uh, I, I have an article in this book here. I don't know if you can see it. It's called uh, Philosophy uh, and the Christian. I have an article called The Metaphysics of Scripture that I co-authored with Andrew Fulford, who studying right now at McGill. And uh, in, that, uh, in that article, I give some of the responses I'll give to you right here as well. I think I have them right there. So <clears throat> is the philosopher not asking questions that the Christian already claims to have answers to? Well, yes, he is. But we need to distinguish between having the answer and understanding the answer to a question. These are not the same. 
So for example, let's say I'm sitting down at my desk in my, in my, my class on, in ma on mathematics, and uh, I'm trying to figure out this mathematical question. And I can't for the life of me figure it out. So the professor comes along and says, look, the answer is five. Can I therefore no longer do math because I have the answer to that question? No, of course not. The professor may actually give me the answer so that I can now figure out why that's the answer. And figuring out why five is the answer to this mathematical problem is doing mathematics. Figuring out why God is the answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing, is philosophy. So just because you have the answer doesn't to, to a question doesn't mean you can't, you're not doing philosophy when you try and understand why that's the answer. Okay. Uh, the only person, I, I should say, the only people for which already having the answer to a question would mean that you're no longer doing philosophy. The only people who would say that are Heideggerians or people in a similar line who think that philosophy is by nature just questioning. If philosophy is by nature just questioning but never really arriving at an answer, then to have an answer means you can't do philosophy. But as I've already suggested, uh, and as most ancient philosophers would agree, the purpose of philosophy, the purpose of asking these questions is to rest in the answer with an understanding of it and to find that peace, okay? And so having the answer already just gives me the opportunity to understand why this is the answer and to have that peace. In fact, uh, Etienne Gilson, one of the most important uh, and well-known historians of philosophy to come out of the 20th century, uh, he would actually suggest that Christian thinkers actually have a leg up on most non-Christian philosophers because they know the answer. They may not yet know why that's the answer, but they do know the answer. Now they just gotta figure out why that's the answer. They may know that this argument against the existence of God is false because they know that God exists. They just may not know why it's false yet. So they just gotta figure it out. So having the answers to the questions does not mean you cannot do philosophy. The Christian philosopher has the answers to some questions and seeks to understand them. Uh, also, it, it's worth pointing out, there are lots of questions, lots of questions that the Bible does not give us the answers to. And whenever you ask those questions and answer those questions, you are still doing philosophy. So can a Christian study philosophy? Absolutely. And Martin Heidegger's uh, idea that a Christian philosophy is a square uh, in a, trying to fit into a, a round hole is simply false. It is not a contradiction. Uh, that is only a contradiction, you might say, if you accept Heidegger's approach to philosophy. All right. Um, I guess I've gone through some of this already, but you can kind of, you know, see here, knowing that X, but seeking to understand why or how X happens to be true is just as much a philosophical exercise as having only a question about X. And just, in fact, I would say it's more philosophical seeking to understand why or how X is true than it is to simply have the question, what about X? The end of philosophy is a contented resting in understanding, not a perpetual questioning without response the end is more important, or at least just as important as the trip. And uh, for ancient philosophy, the end is actually more important than the voyage, because you don't get started on the voyage unless you already have an end in mind. You don't go into the kitchen unless you're hungry or thirsty or going to get something. In fact, most people won't even move at all unless they have a reason 
for moving, an end, something that they're moving towards. So not only can Christians study philosophy, but Christians, in fact, should study philosophy. Let's talk now about the, in the time that I have left about the relationship between philosophy and theology. I'm going to try and do this relatively quickly. Uh, and then if we have any questions, you know, we can come back to this. First of all, when we ask the question, what is the relationship between philosophy and theology? We need to distinguish between philosophy per se, which I defined earlier in this presentation, and the views of the philosophers, which I've been talking about throughout this presentation. Right? So I've talked about Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, and we've talked about Heidegger, and I've talked about some, early, some other philosophers as well. I mentioned at the beginning, Descartes, Leibniz, Locke. They all have their own views on different subjects. But that has nothing to do with philosophy per se, which I defined earlier on. If we, if we understand philosophy as, as talking about the views of the philosophers, they can be used in Christian theology in order to refute them. I gave a couple examples here. If the philosopher makes claims which are contrary to the scriptures, rightly interpreted, remember we can wrongly interpret scriptures. If they make claims which are contrary to the scriptures, rightly interpreted, then we can study their claims in order to refute them. So if they deny the existence of God, well, we can study their arguments in order to refute their arguments. We can, and in fact, many theologians do so. So if you read just about any worthwhile systematic theology, such as Charles Hodge or, or Francis Turretin or others, you will find sections where they get into arguments for the existence, against the existence of God and they refute them. Augustine refutes arguments against God from the problem of evil, as does Aquinas, as do most uh, Christian theologians. How about denying the existence of the human soul? Claiming that man is nothing but matter. We can study the uh, naturalists, or the materialists, and then use their, and then study them in order to refute them. How about denying the final judgment or denying any key Christian doctrine? In order to refute their claims, you must study them. And then you can use that, for example, if I was going to do a presentation on the Trinity, I might study the views of Muslim theologians in order to refute them. We can also study the views of the philosophers in order to persuade others of the truth of Christian theology. So the philosophers aren't always wrong. Sometimes they get things right. And this is what Augustine had to say about the Platonists. He says, moreover, if those who are called philosophers, and especially the Platonists, have said aught that is true and in harmony with our faith, we are not only not to shrink from it, but to claim it for our own use from those who have unlawful possession of it. The early Christian the early patristic authors, when they would look at the philosophers, what they would see is, well, there's a bunch of errors here, but there's also some truth. And so they would say it, and sometimes they use the example, and Augustine uses this precise example, studying the philosophers and taking the truths that they have discovered to use that in theology, that's like the Hebrews pillaging the Egyptians just before the Exodus. So they took the riches of Egypt with them when they left. And Augustine says, not only should we not be afraid of the philosophers, on the contrary, we should study them. And whenever we find something that's true, we should do like the Hebrews. Take what's true and put it where it rightfully belongs. Because as most patristic theologians said, all truth is God's truth. And so we put that in Christian theology and use it to persuade others of the truth of Christian theology. Um, one of the things that I find particularly helpful in 
in doing Christian apologetics is looking at authors such as Plato and Aristotle and even Cicero and pointing out these are philosophers who, especially Plato and Aristotle, had no knowledge of Christian revelation. And without that knowledge of Christian revelation, they still arrived at the conclusion that one God creator exists. So, and you can use that to convince people that yes, there is a God which exists and is the creator of the universe. All of a sudden, Christian claims about, about, about God creating the universe are less strange to people who don't give any authority to scriptures. That's one example. And uh, whoops, I think I went and jumped there too fast. Not only um, do, do a, does Augustine and most of the early patristic fathers uh, use the, the words of the philosophers when they're true in their theology, but in fact, they find precedent for that in Christian scriptures. And so here's three examples. In Titus chapter 1, verse 12, Paul quotes Epimenides. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23, Paul quotes Menander. And in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, Eratus. The purpose of his quotations is, in each case, positive, especially in Acts chapter 17, 28. He is talking to the pagan philosophers, and he says, as one of your own has rightly said, and then he quotes him. And Christian theologians can do the same thing. We can take the truth of the philosophers and in the same way that Paul did, and it's in, it's, it's in the inspired words of God, we can take their truths and use them in our interactions with non-believers. Uh, Titus is the one about uh, where, where the, the, the uh, one of their own rightly says that um, Christians are liars and, and so on and so forth. And, and again, so he's saying this, this particular author said rightly. Uh, and, and this, by the way, has been used by many Christian apologists to point out to Christians hey, if you're listening to a non-Christian singer or you're reading a non-Christian fiction author or philosopher or poet or whatever, and they say something that's true, use it. Scriptures, the scriptures do exactly that. And God saw fit to include these pagan thoughts in the word of God. And this is not the only place, but those are the three that come to mind in the New Testament. So, so Davenant says this, to conclude then in a word, if the errors of philosophers or their crabbed subtleties are marked out under the term philosophy, then we are free to reject and condemn such philosophy. But if we may call the knowledge of the truth discovered by the light of natural reason by this term, philosophy, we judge that it is not to be condemned, but to be cultivated. And most of the early reformers, when they talk about the errors or, or, or crabbed subtleties of the philosophers, what they will often do is they will call those things abuses of philosophy. Whenever philosophy is used to try and prove something true that is in fact false, it is an abuse of philosophy because the purpose of philosophy is to understand truth, to, to discover, reveal, and help us to understand it. And so he says, but if knowledge of the truth is philosophy, then it is not to be condemned, condemned but cultivated. We should in fact think philosophically and study philosophy in order to bet, think better as philosophers. Other uses of philosophy in theology. Uh, and here we're going to look at philosophy per se. Okay, we've, we've talked about the, 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 uh, how we can use the, uh, the different philosophers and their particular views. Let's look at how we can use philosophy per se in theology. And I think a lot of times people don't realize they're doing philosophy when in fact they are doing philosophy. Or they don't realize how influential philosophy is on the Christian theology. So first of all, philosophy furnishes theology with important terms and definitions. I give a couple examples here. 
the, the examples are plethora, but the word being, the word essence, nature, substance, faith, power, knowledge, and so forth. These terms are not defined in scripture. Uh, my, my, my Bible does not come with an inspired uh, dictionary telling me what all of the words mean. Even when you get, as I have, I have multiple copies of, of lexicons from Greek to English lexicons. I have a Greek to French lexicon. Um, when you're studying these lexicons, you're not looking at definitions. You're looking at uh, Greek scholars who have studied the usage of terms in the Greek language coming from the first century and have said, this is how the word seems to be typically used in this context. This is not an inspired definition. In fact, the best Greek to English lexicons will look not only at how scriptures use this particular Greek term, but they'll look at how other authors of the same time period and earlier and before and, and after used the term. And so, the, for example, the word logos in, in, in John chapter one, verse one, you'll, they'll look at how that word was used by Aristotle and Plato and they'll look at Cicero and, and other authors of that time period. How did they were, use the word logos? Well, they seem to use it in this context to mean word. Sometimes they use it to mean reason. Sometimes they use it to mean phrase or thought. And then on the basis of all of those different usages, they can then suggest this is probably what John means in John chapter 1, verse 1, when he says the, in the beginning was the word, the logos. Right? But those are not definitions. The Bible does not give us a definition of the Greek term logos. That's something that you have to have already in your mind when you come to Scripture. What does the word, word, mean? And so this is one of the places where philosophy helps theology. Uh, philosophy furnishes theology with important terms and definitions. In fact, the doctrine of the Trinity is not even understandable if we don't understand the meanings of words such as nature, essence, and person. Those three terms, again, are not defined in Scripture, and even in the history of philosophy and theology, those three terms have often had different meanings. But we need to understand that when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, otherwise we can fall into error. Philosophy helps there. Number two, philosophy can be used to demonstrate what we call the preambles, some people call them the presuppositions, um, of the faith. Here's from, this is from Aquinas in his commentary on Boethius' De Trinitate. He says, in order to demonstrate the preambles of faith, which we must necessarily know in the act of faith, such are the truths about God that are proved by natural reason. For example, that God exists, that he is one, and other truths of this sort about God or creatures proved in philosophy and presupposed by faith. So when you come to scriptures, we don't find a proof that God exists. We have simply the assumption, God exists. And this is his word. Aquinas is going to say, philosophy proves what theology takes for granted. And this is not just Aquinas. Some people might say, oh, that's just Catholic thinking. B.B. Warfield, the author of one of the most important books on the inspiration and authority of scriptures, also wrote two important articles on how theology is done. And he calls the demonstration of the preambles of the faith, he calls that apologetic theology. It's something that comes prior to theology and demonstrates the foundational beliefs upon which Christian theology is based. 
And you can, and I could, if someone, anyone's interested in reading B.B. Warfield on that thought, I could uh, just let me know and I can send you the names of the articles. And, and this, by the way, is, this is just common among reformed thought. Uh, I have sitting on my desk the six volumes of the entire works of John Flavel, and he says exactly the same thing. Philosophy can be used to demonstrate the preambles of faith. Three, uh, there we are, help us better understand difficult doctrines, such as the Trinity, through the use of analogies. And so whenever you attempt to think through something, to try and understand what it means, but you know that it's a mystery that goes so beyond human thought that you can really only understand it through analogies or metaphors or similes or, or, or Im word images, uh, anthropomorphisms or anthropopathisms. Whenever you're doing that, you are doing philosophy. You are thinking rationally to, in order to understand and discover the truth about some doctrine. Four, we can use philosophy in theology. Now, earlier I mentioned using the, the thoughts of the particular philosophers. Here I mean philosophy per se, to, that, that is the pursuit of truth, to refute false doctrines, heresies, and naysayers. Here's, a quote, here's some quotes from John Davenant again. Philosophy, especially that which teaches the rules and the art of reasoning rightly, that is logic, is particularly necessary. And to be employed by all, here by all he means all Christians, in discriminating between and treating all controversies relating to religion. Uh, John Flavel, by the way, uh, again, who I just mentioned, I have, he's, a pure, he's a Puritan author from about the same period. He has an entire treatise that he wrote on reasoning rightly, and he using that to refute heresy. Uh, secondly, he, Davenant continues, the knowledge of philosophy is necessary as well for the instruction of those who have not yet enrolled themselves under Christ as for resistance, if they should obstinately oppose our religion. So we need to study philosophy in order to interact properly and rationally with non-Christians. Notice the idea that they've not yet enrolled themselves under Christ. They're not yet saved. They may be resisting the gospel, but we need to have a knowledge of philosophy in order to rightly interact with them and bring them to the gospel. Um, philosophy was often portrayed as a... Um, uh, oh, I got the word right here, actually, one of the, as a uh, preparatio evangelica, a preparation for the gospel. Um, again, so they who have been educated from childhood in the darkness of paganism cannot immediately bear the light of the gospel, but are first to be awakened by reasons drawn from natural light to contemplate this light, which is the gospel. That, by the way, is very much what Basil of Caesarea will argue in the book I mentioned earlier. Five, philosophy provides us with hermeneutical principles for the proper interpretation of scriptures. This is something that um, I have, I have, I'm a member of the Evangelical Theological Society and the Evangelical Philosophical Society, and some philosophers recognize this, uh, some theologians recognize this, other theologians are loathe to recognize this, but here we have John Davenant, this important Reformed theologian, who points out that the knowledge of philosophy is useful, nay, necessary, to the clear understanding which everywhere occurs in the sacred scripture. For although the principles of, religion, of our religion are derived from God, not from human reason or any philosophical science, yet many forms of speaking occur in the books of holy scripture, many examples and illustrations which cannot fully be understood and stated with perspicuity without the aids of human literature. So the studying of philosophy actually helps us better understand scriptures. And in fact, if you go and pull down any book on hermeneutics, I've studied it, I've read numerous one, numerous books on, on hermeneutics, just about every single principle of hermeneutics is drawn from philosophy 
and supported by philosophical thought. Most contemporary people who study the scriptures today do not realize that a good portion of what is being currently written on biblical hermeneutics is actually influenced by the works of Gadamer, who was a disciple of Martin Heidegger and has been introduced into Christian evangelical hermeneutics through uh, workers, uh, through theologians such as Stanley Porter, who was an important uh, Christian uh, exegete. Uh, number six, uh, the use of philosophy, it, it helps to fine tune our intellects, preparing us for the study of theology by making us more apt to recognize truth, appreciate beauty, and pursue goodness. Davenant again, the use of philosophy and of literature is also valuable among Christians, since men's minds are prepared and rendered more acute by these studies for the treatment and reception of more sublime science theology. Because we are able to adorn and enrich our dissertations on sacred things with the good sayings of philosophers. And so, and this, by the way, is what Basil says. Basil says we should study the, the works of the early Greek thinkers in the same way that someone who wants to observe the sun in midday will prepare his eyes to look at the sun by first looking at its reflection in, for example, a puddle or in a mirror on the ground. And so he prepares his eyes for the great brightness of the sun by looking at its reflection in something else. Seven, for the simple pleasure, and I actually like this one. <clears throat> Why study philosophy? <laughs> for the simple pleasure of pursuing truth, goodness, and beauty. And Davenant says in the last place, I also add this, that it may even be employed to the moderate and useful delight of the hearers as a certain seasoning, as it were, drawn from polite literature. For if the divine benignity uh, shall have granted us bodily food, not only necessary to repel hunger, but sweet and pleasant to delight the taste, why should we not also account this same to be granted us in regard to spiritual food, especially since this delight hath the usefulness joined with it? So this he'll use this to say, hey, read the, read the philosophers, read the poets. It's delightful. Grab Dante and pull him off the shelf and enjoy it. God has given us not just food, but pleasant food. Leave us a couple of minutes questions, David. Eh? Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm just finishing up here. I've got a couple of points, um, which I'm not going to elaborate on. I'll just mention them. Um, some errors to avoid. Illicit dogmatism. Uh, there is a tendency in Christian uh, theology and even and, and among the uh, in the churches to be dogmatic about issues upon which dogmatism is simply not permissible. You cannot be dogmatic about certain issues, uh, and and we have a tendency to want to do that. These are the errors we need to avoid in philosophy when we use philosophy in theology. We need to avoid jumping to conclusions. Uh, we need to avoid desiring an encyclopedic knowledge. We can't know everything about everything. And trying to just makes us, makes, makes us useless rather than helpful. Uh, attempting to explain even the inexplicable. There are mysteries in theology, and, and some philosophers attempt to explain those when they simply cannot be explained. Uh, putting reason above faith. This is what rationalism did, beginning specifically with René Descartes, and then moving through the modern era. Attempting to, saying that you'll only believe what you can prove by reason alone. Number six, not recognizing your own limits. Not everybody uh, is equipped to be a philosopher, though everyone does in fact do philosophy. Uh, introducing the errors of philosophers into theology. We see, for example, a lot of modern contemporary theologians uh, unknowingly introducing the thoughts of uh, late modern and postmodern philosophers into Christian theology. And then finally, uh, creating a false opposition between the principles of philosophy and theology, as if there actually was a conflict there. So in conclusion, 
I've got these last two couple quotations here. We'll, we'll stop and I'll take questions. Uh, for they who perpetually cry out for the exclusion of human reason from treating of sacred things without discrimination seem to require that men should engage in the greatest affairs without reason, when indeed they cannot rightly manage the least if that natural light of reason be extinguished. But now, as to what belongs to the conflict with philosophers speaking against religion, who does not see that it is necessary to be armed with philosophy? For it is like a trench and rampart against their inroads. It is a sword wherewith to thrust them, which, although it renders the truth in no ways more powerful, yet it is very useful in this respect that it repels soft sophistry and weakens its force against it. And this is the quote from C.S. Lewis. I'll leave that there and take any questions you might have. 